إلى شرف النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم الفاتحة. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. today we have a very special episode lined up i think one that's going to dovetail with some of our earliest episodes and some of the stuff we've done most recently in terms of um i guess you could say cult dynamics yeah this is I think another so. one in the great cult category yeah um, this is like a very archetypal sj topic to me though for sure it um, really is on multiple levels and it it should be said you know today we're uh we are joined by somebody that I think, like yourself, Khalid, has a kind of uh, a special personal valence um, <laughs> in, you know, basically talking about this uh, because, you know, today to tackle this specific uh, phenomenon and group, I think, you know, we got two Shahada takers on the show, right? Yeah, two, two Shahada takers, you. yeah. Two Shahada takers. Um, we have our old friend, friend of the pod, uh, and OG Grotto Head, uh, Tom, Muslim Tom from You Can't Win. Tom, are you there? Hey, what's up, everybody? Tom here. Word. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. And I thought, you know, uh, immediately like when this came up, I was definitely like, Tom would be good. I mean, we wanted to have you back on the podcast for like a long time. Actually, no, wait, this is uh, we've been on You Can't Win, but this is your first time on SJ, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we've had wow. you guys on a few times. That just yeah. occurred to me yesterday where I'm like, oh, returning guest, huh? And I'm like, oh, wait, no, we actually haven't had you on like a proper yeah. SJ episode yet. Yeah, but we did the Yankee and Cowboy episode on You Can't Win. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was good. A little that while was fun. Back. That was great. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is a long time coming. We've had, we've had yes, an episode definitely. Like, with you cooking for a while. But I think then this topic, which also has been cooking for a little while, um, I don't know, these two things converge, I think, in a pretty yes, definitely. way. This topic is very much, I feel like uh, this topic sort of speaks to the essence of uh, the positionality of uh, the, the pitfalls of the, the white convert uh, to Islam positionality, <laughs> I think. Uh, so it's good yeah, to sure. have two, two white converts uh, here to... And, yeah, it's, I feel like it, it is quite relevant, quite self-consciously relevant to the group that we're talking about, the Marabatoon. 
very sort of prevailing uh, theme in all the sort of intellectual writings of uh, Abdul Qadir al-Sufi, a.k.a. Ian Dallas, and uh, just his, all of his murids, uh, this kind of idea of um, uh, Tariqa for the West, you know, something that would be the completion of the Western intellectual tradition and not uh, outside of it. Uh, and the sort of very, you know, it even goes into even more intense directions, I think, in terms of its kind of sense of solidarity with um, the like European uh, people. <laughs> Yeah, um, so, sometimes the, the white leaders. Yeah, sometimes the the white part of white convert seems to be emphasized more than the convert part. I guess you could say. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yeah. certainly. Yeah, the white part never, uh, which you would think would be kind of like part of the. I you know, there's not supposed to be any any like. I mean, that's sort of the uh, the goal anyway. Of course, it's not uh, ever practically true. But you know we aspire that there shouldn't be any race in Islam or, or no racism. But certainly the white aspect of uh, the Murabitun and its leadership uh, is never really uh, out of focus. And uh, yeah. I think even yeah. today, like you know, that is a huge constituency of of this group, um, and that was part of the pitch of it from the beginning. But maybe we should start like kind of because you know I think that a lot of people maybe have never heard of this, especially people who aren't Muslim. Even some Muslims maybe I, haven't heard of it. Um, I had never heard of it. I had yeah. never heard of uh, Marabatun before, or, or Ian, Ian Dallas before you proposed this episode. But, I mean, they, they've gotten up to quite a bit of things. Like, you yes. know, there's, yeah. they, uh, they have quite a track record. I mean, I think we're going to get into this today, but their kind of stance on finance and you yes. know like a proper financial system and specifically like a gold and silver backed sort of you know sharia compliant like financial yes. sort of revolution really fascinating i was reading all about uh yeah we'll probably get into it later but like the the e the e dinar and like e gold and stuff, yes. things that mm -hmm. came out like before crypto and there's just a lot, yeah, of, uh, and, and like fascinating ideas also, things I was not as a non-Muslim uh, familiar with really about Islamic discourses around capitalism and finance and, you know, how those things were addressed in the Quran mm -hmm. and also like how more contemporary people have kind of tried to conceptualize like some type of, you know, economic system that would be, you know, Sharia compliant, but also like the the absolute i mean i i found myself like very pleasantly surprised like the sort of you know the critiques in the quran of you know basically interest and usury yes. as being which i guess all the abrahamic religions at some point outlawed but christianity and judaism kind of yeah made their peace with it usury is points. supposed to be i think in christianity uh like sinful right you sometimes still yeah. hear like trad types like uh inveighing against it yeah, that, I mean, I would, Ian Dallas that would, would have his own kind of narrative for uh, how that came about, I think, or how the exception kind of uh, came about. <laughs> I think about. he would. Yeah. I think right. he would. Um, um, that's yeah, the most I mean, problematic aspect of, of their stance on that, I think, to be honest. Uh, my understanding is that most pre-capitalist, uh, like, religious traditions had some kind of thing with usury and either banning it or punishing it or just disliking it or whatever, like yeah. East Asian ones, like, you know, Buddhism and so on. Sure. I, I believe that, that it's a fairly universal thing to dislike the creation of money out of nothing or the idea yes. of like, you know, in weighing capital and financial wealth or just wealth, I guess, as a, a means of like 
accruing power and influence mm-hmm. in society. That just seems to be like a general thing that religions have uh, disliked. Yeah, it's interesting kind of a w where for old religions, you to, know, <laughs> sure, yeah. it's it's interesting because today it like reads almost as like wow, like this you know bolt, like this lightning bolt of divine insight of like you know uh, being opposed to interest. But like I, you know, at one time it was probably just like oh yeah, that's common sense, you know, the same way right, that like right. murder. Every religion was like literally satanic. Like, yeah, you know, like but because it kind of is. Um, yeah, but anyone can kind of yeah, it's anyone can intuitively see how it's fucked up, but like it's hard to like reconcile that. With the fact that it's like the fundamental basis. I mean, aspects of his critique. I mean, he kind of slips into the uh, the socialism of, of fools uh, in a big way. I think mm-hmm. uh, at various I'd points, so. uh, or the the Islam of fools. Um, <laughs> uh, but he, at uh, you know, there's a clear line where uh, that he he crosses. I think, and I think that the reason for that is because actually of like his like intellectual commitment to like the idea of like Europe as being like a force for good or like his idea of Islam as being the sort of fruition of the European intellectual tradition, like, uh, you know, Ernst Jünger and like Heidegger and all these, you know, he needs, he has this deep attachment to these type of people. So we can't indict them for like his biggest bugbear. I mean, we will definitely talk about, like we're definitely gonna, I'm mean, talking about it now, but this is really the defining aspect of the Marabatun's like entire program. Like everything comes back to like this idea of the gold dinar and the silver dirham as like redeem, you know, being like the revival of Islam itself is tied into like bringing back this gold currency. And I mean, mm-hmm. like, yeah, his critique, I mean, his critique of Riba is basically Quranic and like, you know, very much based on this, you know, there's something that to really uh, take issue with in terms of the critique of usury uh, per se, but his solution to it, in addition to like, you know, some of the, uh, assign- like you know, some of his uh, quote unquote analysis of, uh, you know, the historical nature of how this problem developed, you know, that definitely is taken issue with, but also uh, I think like the solution of like, oh, once we institute the gold dinar, then this problem is going to go away. I think that, you know, we kind of did see there were attempts made by this group to kind of implement it or realize it. And like, they yeah. didn't necessarily bring the system of Kufr like crashing down, you know, but safe yeah. to say not. No, no, but <laughs> yeah, it is. Just, I just mean, it still was it's very still ahead of the curve, yeah. very ahead of the curve uh, for, I think late nineties, early two thousands, like before, you know, crypto was a glean and uh, Mark Collins rector's eye, you know, they were almost like competing with, paypal weirdly (laughs) like you know like they were in that kind of space but yeah yeah there's a lot a lot of interesting kind of history there even you know an event that i in a way kind of derails it uh 9-11 like it i had some thoughts about that maybe we'll get to later um about interesting because you know pensions bleeding edge and you know talk of hawala networks things like that money mm-hmm. laundering anyways um you know not to get ahead of ourselves but i think yeah, yeah, yeah an interesting place to start i think is kind of with i mean obviously this order really has revolved around as we said sheikh uh Abdelkader rasufi also known as ian dallas i'm probably going to call him ian dallas mostly just because that's easier now i'm not trying to do the thing of like you know calling the white con like dead naming the white convert you know <laughs> which people like sometimes love to do to make a Kufer point naming yeah Jahiliya um, naming yeah uh, yeah like John uh yeah like uh, i mean it doesn't like you know it's not i'm not like trying to say that someone named ian dallas like is you know like that's 
like a he doesn't deserve a, the name of a real Arab Muslim. Like that's that's silly. I would not like suggest that. Like someone named Ian Dallas, like could be like you know a good pious person. Uh, and someone yep. named Abdul Qadir Al Sufi could have like all sorts of fucked up things about him. So for uh, sure, yeah. So yeah. I guess this is like a good you know uh, hint for any Muslims out there who are looking to change their names. Pick something with easy. <laughs> like in the yeah, stay away from Ayn. Stay away from Ayn. <laughs> you know? Like that is really yeah. Uh, like um, yeah. I mean, I did obviously. I didn't even do the good job. I should have picked something. Like I, I picked a ha. Huh, I should have done a ha. Huh, but whatever. Um, yeah, I just stuck I, with Tom. You know. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> like uh, like, but I I thought of Kareem, but I didn't like Kareem. Obviously, for obvious reasons, I think of like Kareem Abdul Jabbar. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. But then I was like, well, Khalid. But anyway. So, I like making yeah. the, the Arabs have trouble with Tom. They they want to call me Tomb. Yeah. So I, well, tomb. because they had trouble with it, that's why I have Khalid. Because other, I thought the same. Because that's what uh. I, when I went up on Islam on Islam QA and all those things. It's like, yeah, just keep your name. But then when I would say my name, people would be like, what? Like, why don't you have a Muslim name? You know. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever gotten that, but yeah, I haven't. No, to have to, my but. my like thing is, I, I forget who said this. It might have been like Hamza Yusuf or like Sahib Web or AKA you know, Mark Hansen. Um, <laughs> Yeah, one of the, you know, one of the, um, the like decent, like mainstream white, <laughs> like Muslim. Well, guys, but we should say know. a former member of the Marabatun, Hamza Yusuf. Oh, Hamza Yusuf, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. He, you know, he's got his. He broke with them, uh, he, he uh, as many people like, did, uh, but yeah. Um, he appears all over the place, it seems like. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to make of all that, but. Anyway, uh, I think he said at one point that it was better to keep your name because it helps like indigenize Islam in the West and kind of make it less of like this exotic foreign thing and more of just like a religion like any other in, the, in a certain kind of way. So, yeah, um, I definitely I agree with that in principle. That. I agree with that in principle for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, it's interesting. Hamza Yusuf actually like as a, you know, I, was, I was reading this article like about Hamza Yusuf that was like just right after 9-11. It actually is an interesting. I read like, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting article because it really creates like a point of uh, contrast with Ian Dallas because it's so like safe and like what, what's the, the co- so compatible I guess he's being like the compatible Muslim like very much in in this uh, mm-hmm. article kind of positioning himself in this way like uh, as like sort of uh, I guess he's he's described at one point as like being Bush's like quote unquote house Muslim um, yeah like Bush had him in to like consult about you know Islamic matters right after 9-11 yes and right. it's interesting and to think he, he, what did yeah. he say? Like, like if you support, you know, if you think terrorism is Islamic, like go back to your go back to your own country or something like that. Like he basically said, like Muslims who don't like America, like time to shut up and appreciate America or like go back to your own Muslim country. Like yeah. he said something along those lines. Well, that's not necessarily unique to him. It's kind of a spin on something that people say a lot, which is like if you can't like be Muslim in the West, like, uh, yeah, let's see, like. Many people in the West do not realize how oppressive some Muslim states are, both for men and for women. This is a cultural issue, not an Islamic one. I would rather live as a Muslim in the West than in most of the Muslim countries, because I think the way Muslims are allowed to live in the West is closer to the Muslim way. A lot of Muslim immigrants feel the same way, which is why they are here. Um, well. Yeah, it's kind of like it. Yeah, it's sort <laughs> of like an inversion of. Yeah, I said, yeah, No, I think he right. said something more um, pointed. Though. Oh, yeah, no, he said if you hate the West, emigrate to 
a Muslim country. Yeah. Is the headline quote. Yeah, he's, he's advocating Hijra, right? That's, that's yeah, really exactly. <laughs> yeah, you'll still hear this, but it's kind, of, it's kind of in a different way where people say, like, oh, if you can't be a good Muslim in the West, then uh, yeah, you got to yeah. go back, you know, like uh, if you're being tempted by all the, the, all the kufr that's around you. But this was interesting, right? Because, like he says, September 11th was a wake-up call to me. I don't want to contribute to the hate in any shape and form. I now regret in the past being silent about what I have heard in Islamic discourse and being part of that with my own anger. Uh, we Muslims have lost theologically sound understanding of our teaching. We are living through a reformation, but without any theologians to guide us through it. Islam has been hijacked by a discourse of anger and the rhetoric of rage. We have lost our bearings because we have lost our theology. It's interesting, like, this is actually in certain ways similar, where he's saying, like, there needs to be a revival of Islam, similar to what uh, Ian Dallas or Abdul Qadr al-Sufi would say, where... Uh, you know, we need to have a revival like Islam is basically like collapsed into a state of Jahiliyyah, which is part of like a longer tradition, you know, and we need to like in sort of this way, like indigenize Islam and make and integrate it with the West. But it's like in a very different way where Ian Dallas wants to like collapse the system of Kufr like from within. And like he takes like a very extreme like, you know, he's sort of condemning Hamza Yusuf, that is, there's even a part here where I think he condemns like conspiracy theories. Right. He says many Muslims seem to be in deep denial about what has happened. They are coming up with different conspiracy theories and don't entertain the real possibility that it was indeed Muslims who did this. Yet we do have people within our ranks who have reached that level of hatred and misguidance. And yeah, I, I mean, I still, you know, that that was an environment where you did encounter like, um, you know, 9-11 truth. Like I remember, you know, just like uh, going to Masjid like the first uh, couple of times. Like I remember when people would just sort of refer to 9-11 and say like when this attack happened by people who were Muslim or who allegedly were Muslim, you know, there's <laughs> right, so this kind yeah, of skepticism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, um, I kind of miss those days compared yeah. to today. Now it's all well, this dumbass culture war stuff all the, i know everyone's crying about lgbt this and that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. this yeah and that. it's just, just like, like come on guys keep your eye on the prize exactly yeah, yeah. yeah like and I, I mean it's interesting that he was saying that stuff about conspiracy theories like right after that article is from like november 2001 yeah, so he's talking right about after. like right in the even before there was a quote-unquote 9-11 truth movement people in the muslim community you know correct me if i'm wrong you know, because it affected them, like if they especially if they lived in America in terms of, you know, having like the feds crawling all over you, you know, surveilling mosques, like just regular Americans looking at you like fucking terrorists, like all yeah. that kind of stuff being kind of demonized, like in a lot of the media. And so you could see why there it's more there'd be more incentive to be open to alternative uh, explanations and also like. I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the vast majority of Muslims and congregations, et cetera, were not like justifying the attacks of 9-11, you no. know? Like the In fact, I don't were, think yeah, so. They were, I, mean, I wasn't a Muslim like, at the, the time. The vast yeah. majority, yeah, no, I wasn't a Muslim at the time either, but the vast, well, I mean, yeah, the vast majority, I mean, even Iran was like, you know, sympathetic, like, you know, people were, yeah, most Muslim countries, most Muslims like it on the Minbar, like were, yeah, uh, it was like it was the initial really? like the yeah. initial like aftermath of 9-11 there was a lot of this isn't what islam is about exactly islam is about yeah. peace that was coming bush from non-muslim that. bush was about yeah. that he was being advised um, by hamza yusuf uh yeah, and bandar so, right. bandar was yeah. meeting with him constantly to like massage thing kind of like walk that line sort and of there's like a funny thing i mean I, I feel like a lot of people kind of this this doesn't um it's not on the forefront of their memory of this anymore because of where Iran sits today in terms of like the whole chessboard of geopolitics. But Iran was a major 
ally in terms of the invasion of Afghanistan. They were supportive of the attempt to like root out. Yeah, know, of the, course. Why wouldn't the they be? Supposed, you know, people that that did nine eleven because they have a foothold in like we were ba- like they have a foothold in Afghanistan. Like you know, there's uh, pretty yeah, the, Iran there's sympathetic component. Like you know, populations there, and like we were attacking right. their direct, the, you know, the direct opposition. And they were probably. I imagine yeah. they were probably aware back then that Al-Qaeda was a weapon that would not only be aimed at, like, the West, but also against Shias and Iran, which is exactly what happened in, like, subsequent years in, like, Iraq and Syria and things like that, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it didn't even, they didn't have to wait because it already had been, more or less, you know, maybe under, like... I'm sure Al-Qaeda had expressed... Yeah. Host- I, I assume they had expressed hostility towards Iran, like, before 9-11, at least... Well, in yeah, their, all like, flavors of Sunni, like, you know, uh, extremists uh, would have, yeah. And the Saudi uh, connections they had to be aware of, you know and uh, possibly the ISI, like Pakistani links as well. Like they probably could smell that something was sus. About yeah, I mean, Iran and, and yeah. Saudi both had their guys in Afghanistan kind of competing, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So there, there was a lot of political decision-making, I imagine, going on there. Yeah, but yeah, I think you're right in general. Like it wasn't about like, you know, trying to justify it. It was about saying like, actually, you know, the instinct was like that. It actually wasn't us. And that was a setup, you know, like it, you right. know, it wasn't because yeah. it, it was kind of like uh, like according to the way most people would view, you know, the tenets of Islam, hijacking planes and crashing them in the buildings and killing mostly like 3000 civilians is like not uh is bad, right? Like that's not well, Islamic, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean, there's there's very. It's not like anyone follows these rules in modern combat or anything, but there are very strict rules in the Sharia about war, war, and like who's who's a valid yeah. target and what kind mm-hmm. of collateral damage is acceptable. In and fact, it's you're not supposed to destroy buildings, like uh, buildings, uh, yeah. apiaries, like beehives are off limits. Yeah, using fire is off limits. Uh, like injuring the yes, elderly because and only the God can punish with fire, right? Yeah, yeah there's, um, there's, it's so uh, like even just modern warfare as it, like just normal warfare, let alone like this sort of like terrorism sort of stuff. That it, there's, it's already kind of questionable because you know we're using explosives all the time, we're destroying all kinds of civilian infrastructure just as a matter of course, and that is none of that is allowable under the Sharia. Now, does that mean Muslims follow that like that when they engage in war? No, of course not. They're doing what everybody else is doing. But if yeah. we're talking about, is this a religiously motivated act? Well, it certainly wasn't motivated by the Sharia as it stands, you know? So no. Yeah. yeah. So and I can imagine fact, like being a Muslim true. and being like, uh, these guys, everyone's saying these guys are like, Oh, th- it's like that Graham Wood article. Yeah. Like, very Islamic. The 9-11, yeah. 9-11 hijackers were extremely Islamic. Yeah. Trying and to stuff, portray and, like, them as like, this Muslims, is what like, happens if you just apply like Islamic literalism. Like, no, absolutely not. Like, yeah. If you yeah. apply the actual rules of jihad, which, you know, for to be fair, like even in these medieval fic- textbooks, it really was an ideal. Like it wasn't even necessarily what oh, was yeah. being realized at their own time. Like, you know, it, jihad is a war waged by Muslims, like volitionally. But like really during the time that most of these medieval fic- books of jihad were produced, the main way of waging war was through like slave armies. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Mamluks, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, which, you know, ultimately ended up being like a, an elite military caste, but like uh, that perpetuated itself through like. I, I guess I, uh, I, yeah, this would be a yeah. good place for me to plug my little. I just did a series on the Mamluks. So, <laughs> yeah. Know, if anyone's oh, yeah, interested definitely. in that, um, I don't know. They're really cool. Uh, they were like this slave army that overthrew the king that they were under and just took over and started running things on their own. And of course, they devolved into like 
factional infighting between like uh, the slaves that were taken from Circassia and then slaves from other places. So it's it yeah. was a crazy, uh, crazy time and a lot of like, I don't know, just a really crazy yeah. story. It's so a fascinating. To you. Yeah, it's a fascinating period of history. Yeah, and I definitely I recommend uh, your episodes about it. I, we, I would love to have you on like to talk about like uh, Mamluk era history or historiography. Like, because I think, um, you know, it's what like, my like academic work like is a lot to do with the uh, Mamluk period. Um, so oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah it's so uh, fresh in my mind for the most part. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, but no, I think. But anyway, yeah, and it, I mean, it's, it is a great example of how they were. Yeah, they were basically the rulers of society, and they had like a, a nominal caliph, you know, and a sort of a an abbasid caliph who they took, um, you know, their sort of quote unquote legitimacy from. Although they didn't like that wasn't really the you know source. Yeah, of it, it was kind of like a hostage situation to be honest. They were like, "You're yeah. the caliph now, and you do what we say, and if not, then we'll get a new one." Well, actually, <laughs> we can tie this back because it really you know that was like in Mamluk domains, the main and the most like heavily institutionalized form of Sufism was uh, Shadili Sufism, right? Yeah, and it was really during oh, the that's Mamluk true. That's period true, yeah. that it had its efflorescence, right? And it was basically kind of a form of that was also a major source of legitimacy because they would have the sort of Sufis they would endow like the Mamluk rulers would endow khanqas right they would endow sufi hospices for them to or ribets right which is the sa- yeah mm-hmm. which is the same root as, as marabatun right marabatun is someone who is living in a rabat right which is kind of a fort it kind of actually harkens back to the to a jihad context yeah uh, but it's a, like a military yeah. frontier like a yeah. vanguard you could even say like i think that connotation is a forward you know, operating there. base yeah but mm-hmm. practically yeah. speaking like what it, yeah it, that was basically that's sort of the etymological significance and like its old sort of sense but it ribet all like came to mean like sort of a sufi lodge basically and so right, yeah right. they would endow yeah. these structures and then the the shadlis there would recite uh, weird or, or litanies you know uh for the rulers and they would process you know they would lead the the masses to the congregational mosque uh, every friday and like you know th- so because the Sufis had baraka, how they had, uh, you know, a sort of special uh, dispensation from Allah, and they had sort of access to these special. There's a great quote from a hagiography of uh, uh, Abu Hassan al-Shadili, who was the sort of uh, putative founder. If anyone's interested in this history, that one of the best books on it is uh, Nathan Hoffer's book, The Popularization of Sufism in Ayyubid and Mamluk Cairo, which gets into, but anyway, these institutional histories. But there's a great quote from, as described to Shadley in one of his hagiographies, where he talks about one of his duet, one of his special prayers has been revealed to him. And he says, uh, and it shows the political importance of Sufism, like in a very succinct way, where he says, like, this prayer, you know, if Baghdad had had it, the Mongols never would have invaded, never would have conquered them. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's how powerful this prayer is. And it shows like how having those prayers was such an important thing for the Mamluk aristocracy. And that was when the Shadli Sufi order, which still exists today, and in fact, uh, the Marabatun takes its uh, Sicilla, it, sort of a branch, is a branch from, you know, is uh, it's, uh, the sort of preeminent Sufi order in, in Egypt and North Africa. And yeah, and then eventually it sp- spun off into these... Uh, Western Western groups uh, as well. It, yeah, so, yeah. It, it, you know, it's pretty interesting to think about. We're talking about like Salafis and so on, you know, in terms of like 9-11, Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And then the Shadhilis, which are like the Sufis uh, of that period, they were both in in Mamluk, Egypt and Syria, and they were both at odds with each other. You know, Ibn Taymiyyah was in Damascus. And yes. then the Shadhilis came from North Africa into uh, Egypt and they set up shop there, you know, with the graces of the of the sultanate. So it's kind of funny to see that those are the two. I mean, we you know, 
fast forward to modern day, and that's who we're dealing with still in yeah. a certain sense. And they sense, hated each like, other back then, too, like Ibn Al-Fala. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, they, right. you know, basically got Ibn Taymiyyah locked up. I mean, it should be said, like, now it's interesting because, like, the sort of the discourse is not necessarily true, but the discourse is that, like, Sufism is, like, a sect, you know, the small sort of, like, uh, embattled, peaceful, like, you know, <laughs> esoteric yeah. Muslims, and the most Muslims are Salafis, which is certainly more true now than it was then. But back then, it was not mm. remotely true. Like, Ibn Taymiyyah was the, like, uh, heterodox guy who was like you know in vain against everything that was going on around him like calling people back to i mean uh he wasn't like a salafi per se like for that you would have to like go to like rashid rida and like you know much later people but they like revived right. ibn Taymiyyah, and he was definitely a lodestar for them in a big way and uh yeah but yeah. he like you know he at the time like he definitely had his, his supporters and he like did work with uh powerful uh with the state and in, in uh, certain uh, context and he was like a really a war hero against the Mongols uh, in, in many eyes but uh, yeah he was you know he was locked up like what like six times or nine times like something he like could so- not you know, he yeah. no filter on that guy, basically. No, <laughs> he, he couldn't. couldn't. He could help not. Himself. He could not help himself. He like would. Yeah. He, like as soon as he got out for like saying something about like Sufism and it being bidah, he would just like say it right like immediately again. But it, that was yeah, one of the big yeah. reasons that he would have, uh, you know, that he would be in trouble for saying things like, uh, uh, you know, istigaha, like uh, you're seeking intercession. That's bidah. Of course, that was like his big thing was bidah innovation. Yeah, innovation. I mean. He yeah. was in Damascus, right, which was the Mongols had taken the entire Muslim world, basically, like the entire Muslim world was in Mongol hands, except for the Mamluk territory. And it was just a matter of like coincidences and just like bad timing that the Mongols basically didn't get around to taking Egypt yet. Basically, yeah. like there was, you know, people would die. They had to go back to the Mongol territories, like the central kind of core territories and sort out the successions yeah. and all that kind of stuff that happened like a number of times. Um, yeah, that happened to Poland. Uh, they <laughs> almost got conquered, and then Genghis Khan died, and they all like left. But they like beheaded like the top Polish prince right before they did it in battle, etc. Yeah, the Mongols yeah, were. They uh, going. They were about it. You know? <laughs> yeah, they yeah. were about it. They it were should be said uh, that, securing uh, that bag. It yeah. should be said something about the power of Sufism, like historically, like Ibn Taymiyyah. This is a common misconception, like that he was anti-Sufi. Now I think it's like starting right. to be better known that he was not anti-Sufi. Like he had friends who were who were Sufis. He like he always upheld as most critics of of like most quote unquote critics of Sufism always did. All they would ever say was that like they're bad Sufis. Like they're not the true Sufis. Like uh, they're doing it wrong. They would always hold no, up an ideal Sufism. of true Sufism. They would like you know now today you will see Salafi say like Sufism is just an innovation. Period. Like there's no good Sufism. But tr- like you know it, uh, previously certainly Ibn Taymiyyah. He was not against Sufism per se. He was against like Sufism as it was practiced, the Sufism of innovation, right? Yeah, yeah. to be against Sufism at that time would be to be against like mosques. It would be, you yeah, know, it, exactly. It was, it was a pretty fringe opinion to be like, everybody's corrupt and no one knows what's going on, you know? Yeah. Like that's, it's just like, it's, di- it's a different terrain. Yeah, you know? he was against certain things like Samet, like the way that Samet was done, you know, but he, you know, right. he would say like, okay, well, of course it's fine to Samet, under, like to listen to certain things, you know, he would use the term, he would say Samet is allowed, Samet al-Qur'an, right, you listen to the Qur'an, uh, you don't listen to like, you know, music and then have these ecstatic states, like he would be opposed to certain practices that he saw as innovations, but anyway, so, yeah, but that's all sort of the, uh, maybe the, uh, a useful historical context for some of these debates, maybe that will inflect some mm-hmm. of what we're talking about, but it, ter- 
in terms of my point uh, about Hamza Yusuf, what I kind of wanted to say relative to that is that, yeah, there is like an interesting continuity here where he has this kind of compatibility and, he, you know, but uh, and he's sort of decrying these conspiracy theories. Ian Dallas is very different in that I would say that he is a conspiracy theorist. And in fact, <laughs> like openly, yeah. like in his book, uh, which is called like Kufr and Islamic Critique, he even has like, you know, very, very early on in the introduction, he like, you know, has this sort of statement where. He says, let me see if I can find it. Uh, I think it's like on page five or three or something. The conspiracy theory, which is another protective method to deflect criticism from the social structure by means of a logical double bind, is not even worth considering. How could one call it a conspiracy if one to, were to come upon a heroin-addicted community where not only the addict scheme to turn on the non-addict, but the pusher, the supplier, the manufacturer, and the farmer were all themselves addicts? How can you call an open norm a conspiracy? So, you know, again, kind of criticizing the idea that, like, you know, what he's saying isn't uh, is being rejected as a conspiracy theory. Um, and, you know, he's tuned into that discourse. Uh, but in a way, I mean, they were he was at one time uh, Hamza Yusuf as well, one time a, mercy, a murid of uh, Abdul Qadir al-Sufi and uh, a member of the Marabatun world movement. But obviously they went in different directions. But I feel like there's as, it's, it's an interesting thing to bear in mind. But I was going to say another thing that I think makes this an archetypal SJ topic is the link and I think this is a good place to, I mean, again, this is, we're doing the thing where it's like, how, where do we start? And it's like an hour into the show. But I think like a good way to get into the, the topic is through like, obviously the whole order really revolves around uh, it's Sheikh. And he was someone who was really at one time, like super plugged into kind of like the counterculture and kind of yes, that, uh, that whole mm -hmm. Laurel Canyon type of world. Right. Um, and yeah, he was Bob like, Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. He was friends with Bob Dylan. Right. Bob Dylan called him like Alan the only Ginsburg. interesting like yeah. the only interesting person in Britain or something. Yeah, right. The only interesting yeah, person in they, London. Yeah, they appeared like on yeah. some BBC tele televised play in 1963. Madhouse on Castle Street. Uh, yep, yeah. exactly. Um, and the I only guess known Ian copy of the play was junked. Yeah, he was a performer and a playwright, right? And his most mm -hmm. famous role was in Fellini's Eight and a Half, where That's he played. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is he plays like such a prophetic like uh, role or like a role that really presages like his future life. I guess it's you know, Fellini saw in him uh, the kind of person that uh, he would become because he's kind of this like a telepathist. Basically, he's a magician, clown, circus type of guy, you know, and Fellini, he had these like very, you know, he definitely was someone who talked about like the clown as like an occult archetype, like in a big way. Right. In his book, Fellini on Fellini, he talks about like the meaning of the clown for him and its sort of esoteric signification as like the icon of of the artist. But in that movie, mm, yeah, I didn't he, know that. Wow. He, yeah. It, well, Ian Dallas plays like this clown figure who can kind of read minds. You can see like, uh, yeah, I remember in that scene where he's kind of he uses his magic wand to kind of transmit thoughts. And this is so interesting. because This is like a classic feature of what the the sort of. Uh, the, the Sufi saint can can do is be able to read minds, right? And that's his, his key magic trick of his character there. And so, yeah, he's very much this kind of, uh, he's like a pivotal figure in the plot. You know, he helps uh, the main character remember the magic words, um, which I think are like Ansi, uh, Ansa Nisi Masi, Masa, Ansa Nisi Masa, or Asa Nisi Masa, right? Because it's anima, basically, with C's added, which is basically like the Italian form of Pig Latin. Um, so mm. like anima, like the soul, you know, so he's very much this kind of like a mystical or esoteric figure in that, uh, someone who's performing like a mind reading trick. Um, and that was like his biggest sort of acting role. And that's probably why he's, you know, uh, most famous with like non-Muslims, I guess today is like, uh, as the magician in eight and a half, uh, where, wow. yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, 
yeah, it's, it's very interesting, like, how prescient that was of, like, his future life because he really became basically, like, a real telepathist. But, yeah. Or purported uh, to have, uh, have such powers, right? Yes. But, yeah, there were a lot of, like, groups like that that he had contacts with early on. Like, there was the band Mighty Baby. They had, like, sort of a, a heyday for a while. Martin Stone, who also, I guess, recently died. I found, like, in a, a kind of, like, an obituary of him where it talked about, you know, his... Uh, you know, his sort of interests. And he said, uh, the obituary, which is by Ian Whiteman, not, you know, uh, he, uh, uh, this is uh, Martin's occult interests were not unconnected to his love of psychotropic drugs, but led him book by book to works by Gurdjieff, Uspensky, the Upanishads, Mm -hmm. Buddhism, the I Ching, and so on all the way to Celtic Christianity, Geomancy, and finally Rumi and Sufism. Watkins All bookshop. The stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Watkins All bookshop and Cecil Court and Probstein's and Museum Street in London's West End were some of his favorite haunts at the time, as they were for Richard Thompson and later Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin. Books for him contained all the secrets he longed for. When I first met him at his audition, he had a guitar case in one hand and a large book of Oriental wisdom in the other. He first connected with, <laughs> <laughs> he first connected with Ian Dallas, Abdul Qadir, at a, Scot- a Scottish one-time actor and writer at a time when Dallas was given a guest editorship of International Times, an anarchic rag, published in the late 1960s in Swinging London. He interviewed Martin and Roger, the mighty baby drummer, for the paper, and this led to another meeting with just Martin in the old Cranks vet- a vegetarian restaurant just behind Oxford Street. Soon after that, Martin was invited to Dallas's cottage in Devon. This led to a secret trip with Ian Dallas to Morocco in late 1970, and no one in Mighty Baby knew anything about it. In Mechanism, Martin was introduced to the famous, venerable, and saintly teacher Muhammad ibn al-Habib, with whom he accepted Islam and was given the name Abdul Malik. This fits with a viv- oh yeah yeah this call it a- so yeah. sorry go ahead sorry no okay, okay, what were you gonna say so. Are, are these, I, I saw that name in the, in the reading as well. And that kind of, you know, that obviously rings a bell for, for me as a Muslim. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, like the Habibs in um, Yemen, mm-hmm. right? Is this, is, is, is there a connection there? Is this like that same group or is this just a coincidence or? I am not, I don't think there is a connection to uh, the Habibs in Yemen. I think that okay. uh, this is a, a I, I think, I could be wrong. I'm not actually sure, but I uh, think that this was like, you know, someone who was in the, the Shadley line, right? Was yeah, his, could, uh, because it just yeah. seems like a lot of similarities in terms of outreach to the West. Hamza Yusuf is, a, you know, closely associated with yeah. Bin Baya and, and all that and, and, there's that connection with the Habibs. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Just, yeah, maybe. just wondering. That's something to look into. Yeah, I didn't look into it myself. I don't know if, uh, yeah, I don't if you do, did you look into that or find anything? I just that, like did a quick wiki search and nothing popped up, but it's, that, that's one of those names. It's like, well, yeah, exactly. Hard to yeah. say, like the internet's mm-hmm. not always going to tell you, you know? Yeah, but it's true. Yeah, there's a lot of like other uh, Sufi orders, like especially in kind of the, the Maghreb, but also like, yeah, in places like Yemen that are very much focused on, uh, I was watching just today, like a video of Abdul Qadir Sufi in 2009, talking about like his excitement about Prince Charles and like, you know, Prince <laughs> Charles, he just needs to like, it was interesting because he was saying he needs to bring back like the system of like titles and like the system of counties and have like a noble for each county in England. And somehow like, mm. and he was saying he should be a defender of the faith, but not of, you know, all faiths. Because that, like, you know, uh, dilutes them. He should be the defender of the Christian faith. And, like, then that will, like, help Muslims in some way. It was weird because, like, the restoration of the, you know, English monarchy is weird. He was saying, like, King Charles or Prince Charles at the time cares about Islam. He studied Islam. So for that reason, 
he should be like, you know, really into being the defender of the Christian faith and make sure that England doesn't like reintegrate with Rome in any way. Cause I guess, you know, which is interesting because I feel like <laughs> now neo-trad Muslims are like kind of sympathetic to Catholics, you know, but I guess, yeah. uh, you know, he's idiosyncratic in some ways. So I guess he was really against that and was like, uh, he was more, I guess he was more trad in that way because he was kind of, you know, uh, reviving the old uh, uh, Muslim Protestant alliance. Well, I think it was like a yeah. capital <laughs> T thing. He's like standing the perennialist prince. Yeah. Right? Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. And he was, but he was also saying like that he shouldn't be perennialist. And he was like, right. uh, you know, it's interesting that Abdul Qadr, even though I think perennialism is like another dimension of this, like a very prominent one to talk about. Like we did some reading, I think, about about Chuan, uh, which is another sort of shadily initiated person who uh, definitely has some comparable features. And uh, but it's interesting, I think, possibly because like he saw them as competition. He was like very opposed to Goulainon and like people who he saw as perennialists. And I think that like his whole comment of like you can't dilute things, that was like part of that as well. Um, sure. You know, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, hard to parse that sometimes because you know there's all kinds of like little catty backstage yeah politics going it's on narcissism it's like, of small differences yeah yeah like, so how much of this is just to like get a jab at your competitor who's you know trying to like <laughs> basically yeah, the same 20 people you know they, they're trying to like compete over their their favor so it's hard to say like how much of that is like their ideological beliefs that they want to spread to the world and how much of it is just to kind of uh, right exactly it's always like we're not like those people like we're better in this yeah. way or, like this thing that they do is bad but like really they do the same thing but they just like make a point of saying that they don't you know like right. certainly there are perennialist aspects to abdul Qadir's teaching uh absolutely you know maybe not to the same extreme as nasser or people like that but definitely they're there definitely like he saw islam as something that could you know, be an answer to the questions of the Western ex existentialist tradition. Definitely, he saw like, you know, that there were quote unquote truth in all religions. You know, he wasn't like a straight, like a hardline exclusivist. He definitely dabbled in that stuff, but he also wanted to like, yeah, make sure to like throw, like, because he saw himself in competition with them and it, which he was, right? Like, basically, like, right, if you're yeah. like, yeah, this sort of weird esoteric white, con if you're someone like, you know, the mighty baby performer and you're looking to convert to islam then like these guys are going to be like fighting for your for your your muridship mm -hmm. so but this guy eventually did like end up breaking with him because of like weird like personality aspects which i feel like was a like a, a big trend with him that like people would like be all in and like very much wrapped up in the movement but then they would have to like cut ties something would sour after yeah like uh, he seems like an intense guy you know he, he seems like he yes uh, yeah. He's always going to like an extreme with things. Like if he gets an idea about, you know what? I don't like the West. Then it's like everything about the West is demonic and, and satanic and, and so on. And if he discovers something about finance, oh, there's a problem here. Well, guess, guess where that goes, you know? Yeah, <laughs> kind of exactly. It, it has a little bit direction. of, it, it has a little bit of like a LaRouche vibe a little mm -hmm. bit, especially does, with the yeah. kind of laser, the obsessive focus on like one kind of economic idea. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like it's like the Verdi tuning thing almost. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It really is where yeah. like everything, like the, the sick Malthusian, like yeah. Aristotelian, uh, the Vivaldi, yeah. like blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Like you just like popping off on various people and yeah, like, and, and the idea of, yeah, when, when he kind of gets in, in his mind, the notion that something 
that he doesn't like something, then like the entire movement behind him is expected to kind of like turn yeah. a dime and right. basically denounce it. You know, it seems like that's a common uh, high control group or a quote unquote cult uh, kind of dynamic yeah for sure. here yeah. this um, is certainly a high control group i don't know who's in control now like he's you know he's died so well, there was, sure. he had a spanish follower yeah. that was kind of the running the yeah the umar vadilla who wrote a lot of like this sort of like fiki or quasi fiki stuff about the dinar right mm-hmm. uh yeah like um yeah i um i listened to some of his lectures way back like before any of you know before we were planning to do an episode or anything like that so i kind of remember what his vibe was and very angry like suddenly angry was something that i i sort of remember like kind of really taking note of it's like he you know he he has that thing going on with you know the whole Murabitun thing with like the dinar and gold (laughs) standard and so kind of going on Mm -hmm. about that and how islam is the solution to all these philosophical dilemmas that plague the West and all the problems that the West has caused and so on and so forth. And then when he gets into discussions of like, I, I, I don't remember what it was that triggered him, but something just it seemed to enrage him suddenly. And then it was just hate mode for the rest of the lecture. And that mm-hmm. struck me as like, uh, I don't know, that really <laughs> was like off putting. Um, not that yeah, I was like kind of the, he's kind of the Helga Zeplerouche uh, <laughs> or the David Miscavige sort of the yeah yeah you know that it's second that successor thing. that sometimes is even more of a pit bull than you know the one that's probably often how they got there in the first place is you know right they you know, it's almost like they are still in like the right hand man kind of mm-hmm. mode of of doing things but they're in charge so now it's like they're really quick yeah. to use a hammer and everything's a nail kind of a thing you know. Yeah, anyway, I don't yeah. I don't know that this guy's like doing anything abusive, but it would not surprise me in the least. Yeah, it mm. seems like and I think when Hamza Yusuf is saying like how I contributed to that with my own anger, he could be talking about a bunch of different things, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was reflecting back on like his early days with the Murabitun. Because it does well, he, seem like yeah. Was he was just generally a firebrand, you know? Like he, he yeah. was talking about New World Order and like yeah. you know, he was Honestly, against he still television is a lot of the time. Like, but yeah, he, like he only is, but like he's in definitely the sort of boring ass way you're talking about where it's like culture war, like channels, you know, the sort of safe, like uh, you know, ready packaged discourses of like being outraged about like whatever thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? He's become yeah. kind of like a Jordan Peterson light kind of a mm. yeah figure in terms of his politics and his social <laughs> views yeah i get frustrated listening to his like i really appreciate his knowledge of the religion he's he i've learned so much from him and he has uh i i think he has a pretty good head on his shoulders just in a general way but he has this like conservative politics that just as he gets older kind of creeps in more and more into his talks and it i don't know it does annoy me but it's just do? like yeah, it's just like cringe and like irrelevant like a lot of the time and i it's feel just like there's old more interesting stuff, ways yeah. to like like come at it like yeah like you were saying that thing another like very prominent white convert um uh abdul hakim murad who i would say is better than than hamza yusuf in my view generally speaking i don't know if you agree um i don't know i i have they're both i have a lot they both have similar things yeah no and i i think that they're yeah they're uh i definitely wouldn't like put them in a category with some of these people uh 
But yeah, like he was also sort of reading some like Catholic book and like talking about yeah. like how this is important for Muslims to read, like some old like schismatic priest like whining about Vatican II. Sorry uh, to any said a listeners that we might have, but like it's just like okay, like yeah, maybe I guess for Catholics who are into that, but like it's, like I don't understand that's relevant. He said something like, well, imagine if there was a Muslim pope who said you can't pray towards Mecca anymore. You have to, you know the, the imam is going to face you and pray like towards you, so it can be more relatable. It's like well. Yeah, I mean, that would be bad, but there is no Muslim pope, and that's, like, part of why we're Muslim, like, because we're not beholden to, like, this ridiculous <laughs> right. guy. Like, Good point. Um, that kind of did happen in Turkey, to be fair. Like, they did change it. So yeah, like, that's true. Yeah. It had to be in Turkish and all that. But Well, yeah, that's the, that's the thing, like, is that because there isn't a pope, there is, like, a greater responsiveness to, like, whatever the, like, rulers decide. Uh, mm-hmm. Generally, they're much more able to institutionalize things. Um, yeah, for better like, or for yeah. worse. Yeah. yeah, for better or for worse, right? Yeah. Um, it definitely has a sort of uh, flexibility and dynamism, like, in terms of practice. But, yeah, there's also the consequence of that, that it can be, like, definitely shaped by people with, uh, you know, who can exert influence. But, yeah, I mean, Turkey also yeah. eventually just, like, was, like, you know, really just took a very strong... Like, like anti-Muslim. And I mean, this is around before the revolution too, like where, you know, yeah, like we're still kind of like nominally Muslim, but you could tell like, for instance, the Shah before the Islamic revolution, like he didn't really want anything to do with Islam anymore, except like in a very nominal way. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think was the case with the Ataturk and those people. But anyway, yeah, I feel like there was, I mean, the, the best example of that is the sort of Hitler was the only Mujahid of the century speech where I, you and I have both heard Unfortunately, I checked today and I thought it would still be up. But as you were kind of saying before we started recording, even more so than people like Aquino almost, I feel like these groups are great at like Aquino can't even keep like a secret temple of set documents off the Internet. Mm-hmm. Like these people are like I'm, like pretty good at like keeping negative stuff about them off the Internet. Like I feel like they're yeah. better at it than like a lot of the people that we've talked about. And it almost makes me wonder if Aquino like doesn't take it down on purpose and some kind of sick. Though he did have that whole lawsuit in the nineties where he tried to literally like make it so you can't say bad things about people <laughs> on the internet. Like yeah. for everybody and it failed. But you know, in general. Uh, um, no, it, it I had to go Aquino through so many archive.org things. Yeah. He yeah, he's gonna be the new CEO of Twitter from the astral plane. Um, you know, to make sure to make sure there's free speech through heavy moderation. Um, but yeah, Twitter but yeah, this uh, godlike productions. Um, we definitely yeah. talked about it in the past, and we both did listen to the MP3, and you can hear like you could at one time hear it. It was from 1990, where like uh, Abdul Qadir, aka in Dallas, you know, saying. Uh, Every Islam uses a philosophy. I want to recapitulate three names with which I finished on the first day of the conference, whom I indicated as being the three great men of this last 100 years in the world, you know, like yelling. Great in the sense of filling themselves in their time and not in the Sufic sense of man's inner illumination. Now, the first I mentioned is Wagner. And then this is all from, like, (laughs) you know, someone who's anti, you know, trying to expose the Moravitun. Like, uh, this is like a post that I'm reading from on uh, soak.religion.islam, like a, a, you know, a news group archive, uh, or, you know, it's archived now, it was one time a news group. So this is like from 19 years ago, this person's talking about this. So this is like, you know, in the heat of things. Uh, observe how in the process of attempting to excuse himself for his adoration of non-Muslims to the type of separation of church and state, he falls into a worse adoration yet, which is the worship of the self, fulfilling themselves in their time. Then he specifies, he means first, Wagner's reconstructed Germanic self. The greatest living writer, and he continues, the greatest living writer, Uns Junger, said, when the German nation lost in 1945, all nations lost. What did he mean by this? He had perceived this very great man from the depths of his meditation, which was complex, tortured, and luminous, uh, 
a man who had been an officer of the Wehrmacht in high command during the occupation of Paris, who participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler in 1944, who had been the ideologue of the Nazis. That's interesting, because that's kind of contrary to uh, the perception of Ernst Jünger that's, like, typical, but anyway. Mm. And whom one day Hitler set out to visit and was stopped by historical events when the Gestapo found out his involvement in the plot. Himmler said to Hitler, Jünger must be assassinated, and Hitler said, no, we cannot touch this man. Ernst Jünger saw deeply into his age, understood the deep, tragic irony that the tyrant he wanted to overthrow had enthroned him in life. This is the complexity of the age we live in. There is no good in this world that does not have evil in it, and no evil in this world that does not have good in it. Wow. Uh, is Kanye, Kanye a alert. member of the Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> it, like, so Ernst Jünger said, when the German nation lost, all nations lost. Now, he didn't mean it was bad news for everybody. He meant the nation state had been destroyed. This bangs on pulpit. That is the bangs, primordial bangs, fact, bangs of our age, you know, clamming his fist, and nobody, like, sees it. The state has been destroyed. It is a ghost in a torture chamber. What happened in 1945 was the collapse of the system of nation states that had been in place in Europe for hundreds of years. Uh, and then in parentheses, more banging, shouting. And then, you know, he goes on. The second man I mentioned uh, was Adolf Hitler. We recognize the greatness of Adolf Hitler in his non-spiritual sense, prophetic recognition that the theme of the modern age was the abolition of usury. Again, we come to this greatest oh, living writer, this universal spirit, Ernst Jünger, who said, when the Jew was exterminated, Bang's pulpit, I saw people turning into Jews, Bang's. They began to appear everywhere. Ernst Jünger recognized a tragic error of the great visionary hero, Adolf Hitler. Jesus wow. Christ. I, there's, so, there's a lot wow. of crazy things going on in that document i mean first of all the guy that wrote it his objection to this is the worship of self that's not what sticks out to me as the yeah component here. definitely yeah well that reminds me a lot of a uh, doug co from the family even though that's in a christian context but it's the same thing of like let me like uh, twist my the tenets of my religion in the most insane over-the-top way possible to argue that hitler like you gotta hand it to hitler like you just have to hand it to him. He was so yeah. good, you know. Like, what the fuck? Why are these people okay? Um, yeah, it's crazy. I, I, honestly, I I think a lot of these like esoteric, uh, like the, especially like a certain strain of it that's very like aristocratic and elitist, which I think there's a tendency in esotericism to go in that direction. They just end up like this. That's the real pursuit you know like i don't want to say they're like fake muslims or whatever but it they do seem to have a different set of priorities than your you know your typical muslim like the idea that like those three people uh there's obviously like a similarity between them right like they're all involved in uh in nazism and then yeah this concern about the nation state is has nothing whatsoever to do with Islam. I mean, yeah, I've never heard that before. I mean, you could find people today like the opposite. Exactly. Right. Like Muslims today are by and large fairly conservative. Their politics are sort of all over the place in terms of like foreign issues and things like that. But just in a general sense, like if you just take a random sampling, you're going to get more conservatives than anything else. Um, But it's not like this kind of conservatism, you know, like this is something a little bit different. This is like this kind of revolutionary quote-unquote conservatism you know what i mean like it's a reactionary literally like yeah it's truly right it's well it's yeah it's i mean it's kind of fat like 
you know, and he yeah. says like that, you know, he need to have like education and he ends up actually like just very explicitly saying, you know, there is only one civilization and it is called Western civilization. And believe me, I don't want to hear about how decadent the West is. The West is pure <laughs> spiritualism waiting on the news of Islam. The East is darkness, ignorance and tribalism and lust for material wealth. The Mauritanians are disappearing under the sand and maybe it's a good thing to silence them. Um, what the fuck? Yeah, Chill I mean, out. you're right. That, that guy, like, you know, was kind of like, um, you know, focused on kind of like saying, like, this is a Sufi sheikh, a Muslim teacher of the spiritual path. No, it is the essence of hubris and delusion, blah, blah, blah. But people yeah. in the comments did point out and saying, like, does anyone like Muslim or otherwise believe that Hitlerism could ever be successfully reconciled with Islam? If so, on what acceptable <laughs> theological basis? But it's weird to see people like defending him. Like saying anybody familiar with an even cursory glance at Abdul Qadr understands that his message is against the usury banking system. Um, oh he's like God. saying that like Hitler's like awesome, <laughs> like and the, well, the, the, like a great Hitler hero was an indefatigable Zionist for combating usury. You know, uh, that's all he was. I guess, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one way to put it, the, yeah. People like that see the see Nazism as like a good because of this supposed like struggle against whatever they want to call international finance or whatever, you know, like that's, yeah, that's right. the ostensive, like ostensible, me- like a uh, mission of that. They're yeah, anyway, yeah. like it, <laughs> it's a bunch of nonsense. They're putting that front and center and like, you know, maybe he went a little too far in a few places, uh, in a few million instances, uh, like 6 million instances. He went a, or really more like 50, <laughs> 50 million instances, maybe went a little too far, but yeah. you know, his heart was in the right place. Like, I think in another another speech, um, uh, Abdul Qadr said that like Hitler was on the doorstep of Islam. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, no. I won't, I want to bring this up from a very interesting book that we found: uh, "The Sheikh Who Has No Clothes," mm-hmm. um, about uh, Ian Dallas, and it mentions yeah the Hitler on the doorstep thing, and then also I guess he praised a uh, Denunzio, who I don't know. I actually don't know who Denunzio is, but I'm assuming maybe was some. I've heard that name in association with uh, capital T traditionalism and Mutatun, and so he's sort of like involved in all those kind of. Again, it's just like these esoteric, like radical conservative circles. Okay, because yeah, because this author just throws in without much context at all that. He puts in air quotes, Islamic denunzio had two ribs removed to satisfy his needs of auto fellatio. Oh, come on. That's like some <laughs> playground. Like, that's yeah. like Marilyn Manson. The Marilyn yeah, Manson yeah. I don't know if that's true, but yeah, I he was basically that. like a proto-fascist guy. Uh, okay. Ga- uh, Gabriel okay. denunzio, prince of uh, Montenegro. So This is a bunch uh, of like... Yeah. Uh, Mean girls, like fascist mean girl stuff. It's They're so all, like, yeah, it's so funny that like each other's backs and stuff. It's so yeah, like of all the things that they critique them on, they always like are like, well, actually, you're gay. <laughs> like you know, that's <laughs> like the, the like. That's the ultimate yeah, thing. This and they're whole like, take that back. Like, yes, you called me a fascist. Like, yes, you called me X, Y, Z. But like, how dare yeah. you imply that? This okay. book uh, has um, a very similar energy to that Daily Saba article we were reading about the Hashashin, you mm-hmm. know, that like is inflected with all this like pro-Turkey kind of yeah. like, paranoid pro-Turkey. That's the thing. Like, thing. yeah, like when some of these people like leave them, Rob, it's going to like discover true Islam. It's like they're going after them for being like, yeah, not Salafis, basically, which they're not. But like they all like it's that's not the problem with them really like uh yeah can we roll back to the nation state thing this yes, is uh, sure, sure this just really like agitates my autism here 
the mm-hmm. so like the nation state is built on a very specifically European social formation where people are tied to land you know in a very mm-hmm. particular way like right. whether that's from a feudal inheritance or whether it's the republics that sprung up you know after feudalism those were all ba- like your citizenship was based on your membership to a certain territory you know mm-hmm. a, a, a political entity that governs over a certain territory that's why the nation state developed or that's or it that's the origin of that you know that's the the it's the kind of a natural trajectory that that sort of politics went that is not the case in the muslim world by and large i mean in mm-hmm. some cases you can kind of find something similar but by and large that's not really how it worked from basically the advent of islam it was always like this imperial kind of formation where your religious affiliation kind of determined your status in the society so Like, if you were Muslim, you could go to any other city in the Muslim empire, caliphate, whatever you want to call it, and you would be accepted as a Muslim, you know, like that. There wasn't this sense of, like, citizenship. There was maybe, like, informal kind of, like, you know, pride of your city and, like, there's outside, you know, that kind of typical just standard kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't, like, baked into the politics such that it would develop into something like the nation state. Yeah, like, you didn't need, like, a visa to, like, after the Mongol conquest, for instance, to go to Cairo. You didn't need to get, like, your Cairo visa to, like, come in or, like, your your passport to, like, be allowed in. Like, no, they would, like, welcome you. And, in fact, that was, like, where a lot of these, like, early Sufis, like, came from was from, like, the previous centers of, like, Baghdad and places like that, you know. uh, Exactly. They just packed their bags and moved, and it was not a, you know, it was just a thing. Um, and then, like, Sykes-Pico happened, and these, like, borders were hastily drawn very arbitrarily to sort of resemble, like, European nation-states, but, in fact, like, were arbitrary, right? Yeah, I mean, to a large, you know, it's a very standard, like, the colonial problem, right? Like, these, I, sometimes people they say arbitrary, yeah, like, as well. yeah, I, yeah, I mean, sometimes they're, sometimes they're more arbitrary than others, you know, like, the Jordan, for example, has, I think, some of the borders there were actually drawn by a- accident by uh, Churchill, if I remember correctly. But <laughs> I remember hearing that, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm misremembering. But anyway, my point is simply that there's nothing Islamic or there's no reason for a Muslim to be concerned about the fate of the nation state as a, as a political model or a formation, mm-hmm. especially because... W- you know, the problem with the, the Ummah today is that it lacks self-determination in, in a, on a political scale, you know. So, like, adopting models from your oppressor and just importing those and hoping that works out, like, it's not really, like, how is that going to give independence to Muslims, you know? How is that going to kind of give them the ability to develop their own society, to kind of have a say in the way that the world goes, or at least in the way that their own society goes? None of that is really... Uh, granted by the nation state. So why this concern yeah. over the fact that like, oh, they attack the nation state? Well, good. If it's, you know, who cares? Well, that's not our problem. You know, that's... Well, it's also very odd because during this time, that speech where he said all that was in 1990. Is that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it's happening as the Soviet Union and commu- like European communism is collapsing, that he's suddenly coming out and just popping off about how great Hitler was. Uh, kind of interesting, but... Sure, um, I guess a lot of like... Hitler fans probably saw that as their moment, you know? 
coming out party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I also possibly. don't know if this is like the first time he brought that up. It's very possible that he did in the past. And this is just like the one that got caught on tape. I um, would for sure. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious yeah. as to like what he what really his assertion is that, uh, you know, the nation state died in 1945 because we yeah. still nominally do. And unless he's kind of hinting at like that's when the globalists, you know, basically uh, like effectively voided like national sovereignty and everything that's, has been becoming. But then it's I like what you're ignoring what the entire at. cold. You're ignoring the entire Cold War. Like there was still I get it. There was, you know, kind of a, a trend towards globalization and internationalization of economics. But also the thing that jumps out at me is like this is a guy he's defending the nation state and using Nazi Germany as like the sort of the, the ideal example of it. But also, you know, he's a fierce critic of the current like financial system, mm -hmm. which is kind of like that is what nation states participate in. Like that right. is sort of the Central status quo. Yeah. So how are you going to escape this usurious, you know, haram financial system that full of usury and like in the format of like the Western Westphalian nation state, it's just very odd. It would seem to be contradictory unless he's saying like kind of a no, no true Scotsman, like there hasn't been a real nation state since uh, Nazi Germany. Yeah. I think like <laughs> you're right in terms of what back? he's getting like, at that. Like, you know, when he reads that younger quote, when uh, he says, when the Jew was exterminated, I saw people turning into Jews. They began to appear everywhere. So I that's feel like a very saying, evocative like, every, image. Every, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, this, like animorphs thing where people yeah. are turning into like, you know, people's the, forelocks start growing. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's uh, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the final scene. But um, yeah, I think what he's getting at is like, everyone became rootless cosmopolitans and then like we lost our national solidarity i mean again it's no. unclear like what his vision for the future like when we have the gold dinar is that going to be like <laughs> nation states are going to come back then or are we going to have like a new better system that doesn't know. make sense also if you look at what nazi germany was doing like in terms of their ambitions and how they govern the territories they were conquering they don't even neatly fit into the category of a kind of nation state because they were like conquering and ethnically cleansing like vast territories that some of which were like uh, like certain places like uh, Poland for example was like under like general government rules so, like they didn't right. but then other places had like a puppet government like Romania and Hungary and it was still kind of controlled by them so it actually was this kind of strange like hybridistic Nazi imperium they were trying yeah. right I mean they were trying to build yeah. Yeah, and so it was more a Reich than a nation state in a traditional sense. Yeah. So it, even that, he's point. kind of reaching to, you know, describe. It's just very bizarre. Like, where did you get, the, where did this idea come from? Well, it's um, mythology, right? Like, he's yeah, making yeah. up a modern mythology. And I don't know. I read this stuff in the same way that I read a, a lot of, I mean, I interpret this. I'm not saying that I actively read a lot of this crap, but the... You know, I interpret this in the same way that I read a lot of these kind of pseudo, what would you want to call them, fascists, you want to call them far right, whatever, these sorts of people that their solution to everything is to smooth out class, uh, class conflict and to kind of just paper that over with mythologies, with nationalism, you know, kind of like solidify a certain social order and then say, well, this is how it should be. And then people who 
either pose a problem to that order or they want a different kind of order. They are, you know, these enemies, right? So that's where the anti-Semitism and all that sort of stuff creeps in is because those people are just apparently inherently against the order that you're trying to promote, which is inherently good. That makes the people that are in the way inherently bad and mm-hmm. extermination of them is then sanctioned and so on. So, it, you know, it's pretty pernicious ideology. And I think it it's just like a clear line towards where Nazism went, you know, it's, it's not, I don't know. It's, it's motivated by a lot of really bad, um, bad thinking and bad motives, you know, like hateful pernicious motives. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I feel like part of the appeal, like of the part of the reason why he, he has a sympathy with fascism is because they did deal in those kind of esoteric ideas of like peplehood you know, like the idea of like, it mm-hmm. kind of, he's kind of like a Volkish character. So like when he says like the West is pure spiritualism and like, it's the only civilization. It's very yeah, it interesting. Sounds like how Spengler like, or something. Yeah. In, yeah. In one like, quote, he calls uh, like the, the marriage of a man and a woman. I believe this is him writing a uh, Dallas writing. He calls them the overman, like kind of riffing on Nietzsche. Mm, yeah. I mean, he loved which, Nietzsche. He loved um, Nietzsche and yeah. Wagner, like, and I think some. I think this author in this uh, book on Scrib pointed out that, uh, you know, his like effusive love of like Wagner and just like music in general is not necessarily like top of the list in terms of a uh, like Islamic tenets. You know, <laughs> yeah. like yeah, yeah. it's a good really point. overly obsessed with music. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. uh, it's spellbound yeah, by that Wagner. He apparently did tell uh, what were their names? I think yeah, Robert and Lisa Thomas, who were like a kind of like vaguely uh, pretty famous like. Uh, oh yeah, Linda, Linda, Linda Thompson, Thomas. Richard, yeah, Richard, Thompson. and oh, Linda Thompson. Thompson. Yeah. I saw that the uh, that band like arguably kind of got them converted to Sufism, and they sort of dropped off the map. I remember they had that one album from the early 70s, I think on Island Records, that was really, really good, like, 70s, like, husband-wife, like, divorce rock. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it kind of reminded me of um, that, uh, what's his name, Billy Bragg, I think? It's kind of like that sort of, like, folk uh, music, you know, like, kind of modern folk, I guess. Oh, Richard Linda Thompson? Yeah. I guess it is kind of, yeah, because it has that British kind of, like, pub style, like, thing um, right yeah that's kind of what i'm yeah i kind of like pour down like silver is that the album that you're talking about it's kind of that, part it of has, yeah i know yes. it has the song shoot out the lights um yeah richard thompson and linda thompson um no shoot out who, the lights isn't on this one but pour down like silver was the one they wrote like basically under the guidance of uh al Sufi. yeah and, like, that, that was, was like a conversion theme. oh i want to see the bright lights tonight from 74 no actually i looked and this album like is not on spotify this one had streets of paradise for shame of doing wrong the poor boy is taken away some of those songs like appear on other things but for whatever reason the album itself like i I noticed it's not on spotify because i was like oh let me see if i can listen to this whole thing like you can reconstruct it from like what is available like in the best of and stuff like that but it's weirdly not available itself Turpentine. We all need some assistance, but won't that 
but at first like he forbade them to make music but then uh eventually he was like actually you can make music as long as it's for god it's weird because apparently i forget where i read this i think it was uh like uh, i'll see if i can find it but i, I remember him saying like he was like really adamant that robert shouldn't perform but then he like heard linda's voice and oh, he was richard. like linda yeah. you have a voice oh, yeah, richard I, I don't know why i'm saying uh robert yeah uh yeah richard um he heard like you know he was like really adamant that like richard should not play music you know uh but then mm. he heard linda's voice and was like you have like a voice you have to sing um, yeah that seems like a kind of revision uh, my yeah. guess is what happened is that he told them to stop playing music and they were like what and he's like okay never mind you can play music music's fine That's yeah, possible too. yeah, yeah like, you don't well, want to turn away the celebrity clientele yeah yeah um, exactly this guy is is good. Like I don't. He seems like a nice man, Richard Thompson. You know, he seems like a nice, like you know, just. I didn't get any like sus vibes from him. I, I've encountered him before, just looking around at music. I think he did like a bunch of shows with um, Henry Kaiser, who's kind of like mm-hmm. a avant garde guitarist. He oh, he's the Kaiser heir that is an avant garde guitarist. Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. guy. Yeah, oh he does God. a lot of fun like. He just does all kinds of genres. Like he can play any kind of genre, so he's he just like jumps into these folk things and like adds his weirdo like avant garde stuff into it. You know, it's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. That is interesting. Um, and yeah, they they had that encounter with the band Mighty Baby. I, I noticed something odd here because you know they all converted uh, to Sufism also mm-hmm. in the early seventies, but um, one of them, uh, Martin Stone, one of the members of a uh, Mighty Baby went on to found a band called Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. <laughs> uh, Which, like, I mean, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers had to, like, steal their name from that, right? Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Like, what the fuck? You know, it's just, that's interesting. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers always had, like, slightly sus vibes. Remember, oh, yeah. Like, remember John Frusciante's yeah. dad was, like, a judge in Florida that, like, was connected... Was he connected to BCCI? I forget exactly what, oh, what the fuck he was connected to or, like, something... Some kind of, uh, uh, or maybe, no, it might have been more random than that. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. He but, like, gives blood, me the creeps. Blood sugar that, sex magic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, um, he, I think he went on Rogan somewhat recently, uh, the <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers guy, Kiedis, mm-hmm. or whatever his name is. Oh, Anthony Kiedis, yeah. He looks so weird now. These people, mm. when they age, I think yeah. it, it's just like they have trouble holding the like <laughs> the mask the human mask up you know <laughs> you kind of see the demon come out <laughs> he just looks like kind of messed up i don't know i don't want to judge people's appearance like that but he just got a like messed up haircut and he just looks i guess he's had drug problems right maybe that's what it oh is. he did yeah yeah okay. that's probably uh, what uh, it is. back yeah. in his younger day like under the bridge is about heroin um, yeah yeah okay think, well yeah i think he's yeah. been sober for many years but maybe he's like you know vegan i don't know or doing some kind of weird <laughs> experimental health, you know, thing now, and yeah, mixed with a swoopy emo that. haircut that he has a lot of the time. It's kind of like, eh, yeah, yeah. Linda tough Thompson for apparently said at one point, our shake forbade Richard to do music. On the other hand, he always encouraged me. You have a voice, and you got to sing. So yeah, you might be right, Tom. Mm. I also feel like this could be like a creepy thing, you know, possibly. Uh, it's interesting, like okay, unlike Shuan, so- that wasn't necessarily the nature of things people would say about Abdelkader Sufi that he like had any kind of like weird like sexual stuff that I've seen. So, That's true, yeah. Know, but it does yeah. seem kind of like, you know. Really, there yeah. isn't. I mean. Uh, the, Not that I've seen. Um, the book, uh, The Sheikh who, who Has No Clothes, which oh, okay. I, we, we yeah. probably should take, you know, have to say like take with 
a grain of salt. It's kind of mm. like a polemic against this guy. But I think it mentions, uh, yeah, on page 22, this is why the Sheikh is mainly surrounded by very young and pretty looking Mujahids, uh, blonde, brave, intelligent, preferably blue-eyed, Aryan or Celtic looking, rarely, quote, blacks and never Arabs because they are the new men of tomorrow. <laughs> so, I mean, he might be referring to mostly that. male yeah, followers. I think but so. yeah. Yeah, that does sound I mean, like possibly exaggerated a little bit, but yeah, that does kind of sound I like his Actually, deal. I wouldn't be surprised if he... I mean, I think it is true. I mean, we actually have uh, a friend, like, in our group chat who, you know, testified that he knew, like, some... You know, he had gone to some, like, liquors and stuff with, like, Moravitun people before, and he did say that they were, like... A lot of them were, like, you know, still white like that it was like a real you know a lot of them like second generation white muslims and things like that you know yeah uh, that cracked me up yeah. when he was describing what it was like he's like i don't know they kind of just talked about cigars a lot <laughs> yeah they he said that they encouraged like he said uh they encouraged shoe carpentry and i was like you mean cobbling like what like yeah but apparently they're all about like yeah smoking cigars and like doing like shoemaking like stuff like that's an important skill for the modern day mujahid to have to be yeah, able to like okay. you know horn a I, shoe it sounds like at the entry level, at least, maybe it doesn't really go far beyond this, but at the entry level, it sounds a lot like just your standard, like, Masonic yeah. Lodge. Yeah, I was just going to say or, that. Yeah, you know, like like, like those low-level guys. Or that... just, like, your basic, like, Zicker Circle. Like, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like, but, yeah, and I'm not even sure, like, how, like, what it is like now, because I could see it being, like, more disorganized, you know, without his leadership even if like Badillo has stepped in like i feel like it could you know yeah uh, well because we should mention he did pass away relatively recently yeah like within the last two years uh in in south africa i think right yeah well he, he, old, he also like did a lot of stuff and he did a lot of stuff in spain you know because mm -hmm. uh yeah. the famous uh almoravid you know known as the almoravid movement like uh you know that you hear about like in reading histories of iberia they were actually called the Marabatun. Uh, so that's like kind of where he like, you know, so Spain was like a big target for him. Like, like the, a, the history, like Andalusia histories and all that stuff was he, he was very inspired by that. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and then it's he like also European Muslims, you know, that's, yep. that's his yeah, bags. So. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but also he definitely started like the, the uh, Jemma mosque of, of Cape town, I think as well. And he was really into South Africa too. Uh, for a long time, interestingly. Yeah, um, that, that is odd. I mean, the thing with South Africa is that you, you do have to... It, it's not like that would purely just be on that white supremacist thing necessarily. There were a lot of Indian heritage Muslims, like yeah. South Asian Muslims mm -hmm. there. So mm -hmm. that... It's like there have been Muslims there for a, a, quite a while. And there is like a significant kind of Muslim presence in the country and stuff. So, I, I you know, again... It's just a matter of, like, you want to be careful sometimes. You don't necessarily want to jump to, like, oh, South Africa, probably Nazi stuff. I mean, maybe. Yeah. But. <laughs> uh, well, we don't necessarily need to rely on that uh, to suggest, like, some kind of Nazi sympathies here. But That's I true. Do, That's yeah, I, I do true, yeah. feel like I remember reading, like, I think it might have been in uh, uh, Abla Rachman Lomax, like, wrote a response to, I think it might have actually been from Uthman, the Italian, like, the same guy. You know, uh, it was named uh, like warning uh, about like a shady cult, right? Uh, it's in on on the work flowy. Um, I feel like maybe he described 
I, I think it might have been in that. It might not have been. Oh, no, he was talking about in Spain, right? They sh- sold the mosque. They ran for over a decade to the Vatican, ignoring offers put forth by local Muslims. But I feel like that, I, I think I, I recall reading, maybe I'm getting confused with this, but I, I remember something about, like, his like his uh, masjid in, in uh, uh, South Africa, you know, had, like, sort of weird relationships with, yeah, because there were, like, a lot of Indians there because they were brought in as, as coolies, basically. Um, mm-hmm. is that, I don't know, like, uh, you know, that's what they were called at the time, you know, apologies for using the term, but, and that's like, you know what, but I remember, I feel like he, I mean, you can see like how he does kind of have a certain disdain. For instance, uh, I was going to say before, like one of the things that I feel like is one of the biggest giveaways about the, uh, about Ian Dallas is that like, you know, you'd think it would just be a layup to be pro-Palestine, but he's not. <laughs> you would <laughs> like, think so. Yeah. Yeah. No. He's not. He like hates Palestinians. Uh, and he, he called them like a degraded people. <laughs> yeah. So he can't even like get on board with that. He's so, got a little yeah. bit of that, like contrarian, like he's got a, you know, a little bit, whatever yeah. you <laughs> expect him to, to whatever position you expect from him, he's got to take the like next one. Like, actually I'm so much more clever than you thought, you know, a little bit of that yeah. super villain energy <laughs> or something. I feel like it's kind of what we were talking about before too, where it's like, it somehow bolsters, it helps like isolate everyone from the rest of the Muslim community mm-hmm. for him to That's be like true. taking these stances that are like, no, like they're all wrong about this. Like they That's don't a have good the gold point. dinar, like they, yeah. you know, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, you, yeah. you can look at the rest of the Ummah and be like, oh, they're all like misguided or they're yeah. barely even Muslim. So therefore, you don't have to care about them. You don't have to, you know, you're not beholden to any of the norms of the community. You know, you kind of just do your own thing, which mm-hmm. uh, seems to go in weird directions, you know? Yeah, which is, yeah, like for all the sort of suggestion about like, you know, bringing Islam to the West, that's a thing. Like uh, that guy, you know, this. Despite the uh, sort of uh, myopia of his critique, I think it is true that like a lot of this became about like the Sheikh it, himself and like, mm-hmm. you know, his, like it was all about him. Like it wasn't really about like uh, Islam uh, or like, you know, cr- creating like a, a, an authentic Islam, you know, or bringing, uh, you know, Muslims in the West like into like a, a fellowship with the larger Ummah. It was just about like creating a gold dinar and like you know uh, creating well, a culture. Isn't so. isn't that so similar to all kinds of Western individuals who were both caught up in like the psychedelic nineteen sixties counterculture and then all around really around the same time like sixty eight sixty nine jetted off to somewhere in the global south and you know came upon a guru. Who, and then they dedicated their life. So, this is, I mean, his movements are so similar to, say, like Ram Dass, who was yeah. like mm-hmm. yeah. oh, totally caught up in all this trippy shit. And then he went to India and he got like anointed by a guru and then changed his name and then came back. But then you could see throughout their entire careers, then when they bring this like Eastern wisdom back to the West, it's always ends up getting kind of used in a very instrumental and kind of, you know, or, you know, you could say the same thing about like bringing ayahuasca here and stuff and how we've talked mm-hmm. about the the huge differences between how like ayahuascaros in, you know, Peru actually use it and the way that people in like fake ayahuasca churches here do and like mm-hmm. charging $500 and, and just how a lot of things just get like inconvenient things just get kind of dropped and it's actually not about connecting with like i don't think that like i i i generally think i could be a little bit wrong about this but like white converts to hinduism or various types of things that maybe like people like ramdas were promoting 
are kind of in their own realm and do not necessarily like they're not exactly in community with like Indians, you know, Indian Hindus and stuff and, you know, people that kind of, you know, come from that culture. And I think the same thing about maybe these white Muslims and the Marabatun and, you know, go down the list, like all of them, basically, they're like these sort of a heavily white, you know, sort of Anglo dominated, instrumentalized, like religious groups that often don't bear and and often like the the guru, the ego of the guru himself and it is usually a him uh ends up kind of dominating everything <laughs> in, yeah in i, I think you're probably way. right yeah that that does seem to bear out I, I i look at a lot of that sort of stuff as the same like it's a they're producing a commodity in a sense you know like it's the same yeah. thing as like someone going to like some jungle somewhere and they find some plant that the people like just have around and they're not really like capitalizing on it like the way that a, a western corporation would but, but this guy found it so he's gonna make some you know a shampoo out of it or he's gonna like use it to make some medicine or something like you know they kind of yeah, yeah they're capitalists right they're like little mm-hmm. p- uh, petit bourgeois sort of capitalists you know they they develop a little business a little organization they get donations from people you know they start to hobnob with people of wealth and influence that gives them more access and they start selling this stuff like they come up with their own little brand their own little lifestyle thing mm-hmm. um yeah it kind of works that way opportunity you know? yeah yeah and i think he definitely got into it you know even like kind of boiling down you know this entire like mystical kind of sufi approach to uh, a very concrete like platform of um you know his uh his his plans for reinstituting the fallen pillar of zakat right mm-hmm. yeah there's a i mean a, i remember reading his stuff way back when i converted and honestly a lot of the, this reading that we did for this episode was a bit of a nostalgia trip because i got into mm-hmm. islam through perennialism and traditionalism just reading shun th- reading all that kind of stuff it definitely gets into weird directions, whereas why, which is why I didn't like pursue that, you know, particular yeah. kind of aspect of it. But that is that is my entry point. So this was a little bit of like a trip down memory lane. Um, a lot of his stuff is uh, like I don't have a problem with the way he describes a lot of things about Islam. Like I think he does seem to have a sincere, or I guess he's passed now, so he had a sincere kind of like belief in say like the prophethood of Muhammad. And so I don't think he was just pure grifting, you know, mm-hmm. in a cynical sort of sense. Yeah. Um, and he is able to like convey certain ideas that are lacking in, um, you know, just kind of tr- mainstream Western discourse about spirituality and about what Islam can offer um, a Western person. So I think there's, there's like actual value there and that's probably what draws a lot of people in. Um, but it's when you get into these like really specific like and weirdly political programs like about the currency and about mm-hmm. like the this idea of nationhood and nationalism and whatever and like this idea of like the you know there's like this cabal that runs international finance that's holding down the muslims and all that sort of whatever i mean maybe mm-hmm. i'm misconstruing that idea a little bit but it kind of definitely feels uh, like that right I like i think I mean, yeah, I think we can That's safely say that's definitely true. Yeah. I mean, if you okay. read uh, his book, Kufr, he goes uh, <laughs> much more deeply, uh, which uh, trying to let me verify the year that that book came out. Yeah, it's called Kufr, uh, an Islamic Critique. Um, and uh, it came out in uh, 1982. 
So I guess pretty early on. And his uh, ideas did evolve. But in that book, he's very explicit uh, that, like, Jews are basically, like, to blame. Which is interesting because a lot of people, mm, like, okay. you know, I've definitely heard a lot of people suggest that, like, it's part of what has, uh, is, you know, maybe I think maybe a Hamza Yusuf, maybe not anymore, but at one time would suggest that, like, anti-Semitism is something that has, like, held Muslims back. You know, some of the people who are like, oh, Muslims are, are retrograde is because they're, like, caught in this, like, resentment against, like, the West or against, you know, or against Jews. I mean, I guess maybe uh, Ian Dallas would agree that it's the resentment against the West is holding Muslims back, but resentment against Jews is, like, important and good in his view. Uh, so I don't know. But it's Except for yeah, Israel. That's weird. Except yeah. for Israel, they're based. Stop complaining about the Palestinians. Well, well, they, like, they found a nation Israel, state, so they're good guys now, I the guess. Yeah, true. Yeah, like, okay. uh, I don't, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Um, it's interesting, though. Interesting. I think he said, like, it's all a show. It's all a show to distract people. So, like, don't worry about, like, I don't know, which is weird because, like, you're obsessed with Jews, but also, like, you know, opposition to, to Israel as a show. Um, that you yeah, that's that's often, a, that's isn't that a vibe? Isn't that kind of like a like a white, you know, sort of fascist vibe, though, to like kind of love israel but like also hate jews kind it of kind everywhere of, or like, like yeah, i guess like to respect like you know to respect israel yeah. like i remember richard spencer like saying like They're i tough. want you what you have for my people you know mm-hmm. i i respect what you do you know i just i think that we should have that for my people um, right that's sort of like yeah. the kkk na- and uh, nation of islam sort of thing yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah or hitler the like, only thing the establishment fears like Zionist. the fist bump <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think think it's um, a lot of those types of people. And I I think this is even a somewhat prevalent view in Israel itself that like the state of Israel and the whole Zionist project is like a way of de-Judaizing Jews and turning them into just one other nation among other nations. And now they're like cured of their. <laughs> whatever diasporic like, identity yeah they're like wandering nature or something because well, they're like rooted in the holy land or something like that well yeah that's like kind of an old sort of zionist like nationalist like concept right of like they're sort of like seething hatred for dia- like the weak diaspora jew and like yeah if you look at like the early mm-hmm. uh zionist propaganda posters and things like that it's like they all like look Aryan, you know, all the like the Jews mm-hmm. like who are making the desert yeah. bloom, like in all these sort of art deco posters and stuff like that. Like that's, you know, or like Zionist realism, uh, you know, they all look like blonde haired, blue eyes, like muscle men, you know, yeah. uh, they're not. They like, had like a term the for Torah, the Talmudic scholar, you know, they're like, you know, muscular Judaism. Yeah. Yeah. They had a term for like the like the new Jew, like the new man kind of concept that they yeah. had. And it was something to do with the cactus. It was like their word for a certain kind of cactus that grows in the desert. And it was like hardy and mm. prickly. You know, it was, it was able to defend itself and was self-sufficient. Yeah. So there was like all this sort of like rugged individualism kind of stuff that was like yeah, the, baked the into the... Sabra, I think is, you know... Sabra, that's what it is. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, those are like uh, Israeli-born Jews, right? Yeah, like the new, like hardy Jews who were bo- desert-born and like they're, yeah. they're the new... Yeah. Anyway, so, so um, yeah, I, I actually didn't get a chance to read that book, Kufr. Um, that yeah. does sound like it's pretty much naked it anti-Semitism. Is. I'm just oh, like yeah. a little bit wary to like jump to that sometimes because... Like, for example, like, Said Qutb is often called, like, this heinous, like, his his books are so violent and so awful and all that kind of stuff. And he definitely, like, promoted, like, terrorism, like, just outright terrorism after he was uh, imprisoned and tortured in Egypt. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's been a while since I've read it. Maybe I would have a different opinion now. But 
I remember reading milestones and thinking, I kind of agree with a, a lot of this here. It's a lot of it isn't necessarily like saying you have to kill people. You have to like, you know, there wasn't really any actually like, I don't know, all the stuff that people like objected to about Kutub was not present in the book that I read. So I, mm-hmm. I just am like, okay, well, I actually want to like be careful about this because it's like sometimes people uh, just kind of run wild with these uh, accusations, you know? Yeah, yeah it's I a little bit. It, like, it, it, yeah, no, even if I, I, it just reminded me of like when we were reading um, like Che Guevara's like guerrilla warfare manual and like all the stories you hear about him from like the Felix Rodriguez's of the world of like. Like, he walked into a room and, like, grabbed a 14-year-old who had written, like, fuck Fidel in, like, graffiti on the wall and, like, shot him in the head in front of everybody. And so, like, viva la revolution, motherfucker. And then you read him, and it's, like, he's, like, very, it's very disciplined and dried. It's, like, if you wound somebody, like, if they surrender immediately, like, you know, like, disarm them and give them a brief political lecture and then let them go and, like, comply with Red Cross, you know, and, and like, maybe that wasn't always adhered to or whatever, but it's just right. a very different vibe of, um, it's so easy to write somebody like that off as, like, a bloodthirsty killer, like, terrorist, like, murderous piece of shit, but well, it's, I, I mean, to but, me, it's just, like, if it's in the text, it's in the text. If it's not, you can't say that it is, you know? That's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's all it is. I mean... Yeah, like, I could have, like, I mean, again, like, not everything that is in Milestones, like, do I agree with? Not everything that's in the shade of the Quran do I agree with? Like, but, Sure, I mean, honestly, I, let me just be clear. In, that's that's true of me, too. I'm, I'm not yes, saying I'm right, fully course. sanctioning. I'm just saying. No, no, saying, no, no. no. Like, and I, I mean, I want to do an episode about Kutub at some point, because, like, I think, obviously, an interesting figure. And, like, yeah, the, the Muslim Brotherhood is, like, also a very interesting history. But, um, you know, there's, like, stuff in this very book, Kufr, that, like, I agree with. And, like, I think that, you know, to your point, I think for me, I don't know if you feel the same way. I was trying to express this to my friend like a little while ago. It's hard to articulate, but I feel like after a certain point, I think you've even been Muslim for longer than I have, maybe. But, you know, I've been Muslim uh, for like 2010, over, I guess. Uh, yeah, uh, a couple years after you, I think. Yeah. I took to the Shahada. But yeah, so I've been Muslim for like over a decade now. And I almost feel like it's not really like, I don't, I don't feel it as like being the sort of like uh, choice type of thing. Like, you know, it is like a. I feel like for converts, like uh, whatever, uh, like uh, ethnicity or appearance, you know, it does have that element of being a choice in a way that it's not for people who like have been with this since they were little babies. You know, for me, like I don't have any family connections to Islam or anything like that, you know, so it's like a different sort of thing where it's like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to follow this religion. Like I'm going to become Muslim. And I think that like um, in that, and I think that that kind of aspect of like, you know, now it's just like who I, you know, now it's just like part of who I am. Like, could I like, am I going to stop? doing so a lot like no like it's like not even conceivable you know at one point like if i something it came along like i don't know like maybe there might have been a possibility of like uh that changing i I mean i don't know i feel like well i mean i have a a, like a religious orientation to it where i feel like Allah like calls who he wills you know and like that's just like how it is and that's was the experience for me of like reading the quran was that like it wasn't something where it's like oh like interesting idea like i will adopt this but it's like oh this is what i already believe um you know Mm. like this is uh like yeah like what i was meant to be but you know my point about that is that i feel like when converts were looking for like sort of a connection to Islam, like it's it's an isolating experience, you know, doing uh, yeah. Eid alone, you know, or doing Ramadan alone, uh, being like walking into the masjid and everyone's like, is that an FBI agent? You know, like, <laughs> uh, et cetera. Like, I'm joking. Like, actually, Muslims are like extremely welcoming, like usually. But it is kind of like a thing where like, 
you know, you, you do like stick out in some cases and people will want to hear your conversion story. You know, they're like they're mostly like excited and very welcoming, but it's like, you know, you're that's still, been my experience too. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. just I was, so, yeah. you know, they want to be, they see it as an opportunity to be like, Oh, here's my chance. I can like help someone along. Exactly. I can, like, teach yeah. them something, you know? Yeah. And even like, if you go into a, a mosque, like, you know, if you're traveling, you're in a new place or like, you know, you visiting a mosque you haven't been to before. Everyone's like, Oh, you converted to Islam yesterday. Like, let me like, you know, <laughs> yeah, your, that's yeah, true. It's like, that's true. Everyone um, teaches you how to pray. Like you haven't done it before. Yeah. 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 No, I think I've learned to pray at least three times uh, from different people, <laughs> like out of politeness. And of course, like I was so self-conscious that like, I like, you know, I feel like I, I had a pretty good understanding of Salah before I ever walked into a mosque because I didn't want to like be that person who's like, I it was know, the exact same out. way. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like we both had a similar experience of like kind of feeling vulnerable when you first yeah. convert and not really knowing, you know, just kind of being unmoored. You know, you, you something about it calls to you. You feel like it's true, but nobody else does. Or the yeah. people that do, they're different from you in a way. Like there's just such a, a gap in your experience that it's hard to... They don't understand the process of conversion and that experience, but they understand being Muslim. Whereas, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and but they don't understand where you're coming from. Like you converted from something on some level and they don't yeah. really necessarily have the understanding of that in the same way that you don't have an understanding of being born into Islam. You know, so there's always like a bit of a gap. And um, like I said, that can be a vulnerable feeling. It can be a confusing feeling. So I think that's where somebody like an Ian Dallas can come in there and say like, well, guess what? I have all the answers. I'm just like you, but I'm like, you know, 20 years down the line. I'm more charismatic. I'm more, you know, I, I've, I've got my stuff together. Let me guide you. Let me help you along this process. Yeah. And, and in fact, that show vulnerability, you what this is really about. in fact, that vulnerability that you feel is because you're special, you know, like you are, yes. the, you know, yep. going to be part of this movement, you know, as uh, Dimitri said, like this advanced base, that is going to mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, be special for everyone, you know, which I feel like isn't yeah. the right orient, you know, like, but yeah, I mean, I was going to say like one, you know, something that I feel the element of it being like, oh, you know, for I think it actually kind of resonates. Maybe, I mean, I think that maybe in the swinging 60s kind of climate it might have as well, but, you know, during the, the Cold War type of period. But it, it's interesting that like, you know, it has this, as I was saying, like, by even this book, Kufer, which definitely goes into, like, a Khazar conspiracy theory, like, halfway through, you know, like, oh, uh, like, yeah, I say <laughs> conspiracy theory, you know, is straight up, like, you know, he says, like, uh, that, quote, you know, the Christian ethos was long ago overthrown by the subversive revenge of the exiled, quote-unquote, homeless Russian Khazar tribes, who had converted to Judaism, both to be free of attack from Christian and Muslim armies, and in response to the mythology of alienation that surrounded the tribes of Israel historically, to be ideological Jews who were not themselves Semites, and thus the chosen people was a wonderful fulfillment of the disenfranchised and alienated condition of the Khazar tribes. Um, I mean, and, maybe okay. that's true, but like that, I mean, that's well, one I think of those things that people that, just like, say. Well, I think he's kind of saying that like all Jews know? today are yeah, Khazars, yeah. which like, you know, which right, I don't right. Think or Ashkenazi is, or pri- Jews yeah, are prim- yeah, which I don't think Yeah, that's really that classic I mean, that theory, was a real, right, yeah. the Khazars did exist and like there was a Jewish conversion, I think in the Khazar Khaganate, but I don't like, yes, there was. Like, you know, there's no Semitic line, which is interesting because eventually it seems like he's just straight up anti-semitic like against arabs as well but uh to an extent but uh but i was gonna say like even in that book there are still things that like you know especially like the uh, idea of islam as being opposed to capitalism right that's something Mm -hmm. that i feel like you can really plug into especially as a convert because like Mm -hmm. 
because you're alone in two worlds in a way where like as you said like yeah other muslims maybe understand being muslim but not the experience of converting and other non-muslims like your old friends like they don't understand like being muslim but they can understand like other things you know for instance like you know how many people's identity these days is based in their opposition to capitalism right i think many people can like you know their main thing is like i'm a communist or like i'm this type of leftist or whatever yeah sure like i believe in this ideology that is the Mm -hmm. answer to capitalism or the flip side the whole maga whatever trad stuff yeah yeah and you even see like a you even see like a combination of them too like in a way yeah like uh these days sometimes where it's like yeah i'm an i'm I'm trump communist or whatever you know like uh hedging your bets you know that's reasonable that that makes a lot of sense to me you never know but yeah the sort of ideological identitarianism is like a you know strong thing with like people who like in this sort of modern uh paradigm so i think that thinking Mm -hmm. of islam in that way is uh appealing you know and i mean obviously i agree with the critique of capitalism i don't agree when capitalism becomes like a code word for like a certain ethnic group but uh you know like (laughs) there's still like you know phrases like in this like when he's like being vague and saying like um you know, the collapse of civilized existence and the present polarity of state tyranny and personal psychosis have placed the human condition in jeopardy. Political rhetoric about the threat of nuclear war veils from ordinary people to the danger of the species lies not in any future crisis, but in the current social network nexus where the purpose of existence has been so bound to irrational and magical goals that almost all linguistic analysis may be considered already too late. You know, or when he says that, like, the idea that our current society uh, is better than past societies in every single way and that we don't think learn from the past that's a critique mm. that i you know that's a critique that i agree with the critique of that idea but you know obviously, wait even you, in this, you agree that modern society is better than past society in all in ways no, way. no i agree with the critique of that idea <laughs> oh i see yeah. um, oh gotcha no, i mean he, yeah. he's kind of like, spitting when he critiques parts, that idea, um yeah. yeah when he when he critiques that idea i, I agree with it um like you know yeah that, uh it is not yeah, like his writings all aren't all like yeah. hitler worship yeah like, and even they, in this book that does go into like just you know you know really being like uh you know off the wall in that respect it's like there's still stuff in there that is you can see like the appeal of it and you know the critique of capitalism that is i think you know that is something that like maybe uh, the Muslim community could like emphasize more, but like that's what's kind of interesting about this material to me in a way is like you know not that like it's like oh look how like we can recognize like look how crazy this person is you know like no like actually like and it shows like how Islam like something that's meaningful like to me and you know meaningful to you Tom and like you know something that's in, as I've said before something that's good you know like things that have like strong like extreme good aspects like you know it's kind of not doing the thing of like saying like oh isis they're not muslim because xyz or like these people aren't muslim because xyz right they are muslim but like something that is so like that has so much meaning and is so profound like inevitably it's going to manifest like not in an only only in a good way we obviously like mm-hmm. we can't like you know he's representing islam as like the answer to all of our problems like uh but we have to have like true islam you know like and uh, the islam that we have now isn't right we just need to find the right islam to get it his I, is like, yeah exactly and that's, I think that's that's the problem right it's, yeah it's when it becomes like and i happen to have come up with it you know i yeah I, i'm just some genius guy who fixed all the world's problems and here you go and uh, yeah i don't know real like scientology yeah. kind of like stuff, bob avakian you know? has come up with the like novel synthesis of all strands of like marxist theory and come out with like the ultimate communist theory that you know blah 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 yeah or like, this yeah. Guy claims of like, that nature you know, the, the Sufi Sicilia actually helps him in a way because, like, that's, like, one of the big critique of Islamic modernists where it's, like, our entire tradition is wrong. Like, I figured out what the Quran really means, like, now, like, you know, through my training in the historical critical method, like, from Harvard or whatever, you know, like. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, all right, well, yeah, like, but I think, yeah, that's like the whole, like, this is part of the, at least the social phenomenon of Islam. Like, uh, we all have, like, you know, what we believe is, like, the proper way to, like, follow the religion, but at the, like, the sort of sociological level, the way that Islam is practiced and realized in the world, like, as a, like, religion or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, is being, uh, this is, like, still part of that picture. And it shows, like, the complexities. Like, you know, I think that maybe in that early, in that early phase of conversion, like, you do have that zeal to convert where you do kind of feel like Islam is going to solve everything. You know, like, Islam is the right thing. Islam, but, like, then after a while, you realize, like, oh, you know, there's so much complexity to the situation that we're in, you know? like right. uh, Yeah. That and al- and like, that ultimately it's not, like, superheroes. It's still just human beings like everybody exactly. else. Exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. So it yeah. has the same and, flaws and foibles and all that. And that's an important lesson in general, I feel like. You're never going to find, like, the perfect program, you know, even if you have, right. like, a revelation from God. Like, that is still not sufficient to, like, you know, if everyone just, like, follows it, like, right. You know, like, or just, like, all you need to do is read this book and then everything Trust will be the fine. Plan. Like, because there's always the aspect of interpretation. There's always the aspect of, yeah, the, you know, the and human And it, it's self. also, like, God doesn't call you to, like, do these mechanical actions like he's calling you to like get your heart right you know like to all of this stuff about like that we figured it out we have the solution like we are better than all these other degraded muslims in the world and that's all serving the ego you know and so much of the the point of islam is to conquer your ego or to discipline it and to not be yes like there's a there's a common symbol of uh that, that Sufis actually like to use, which is the the man riding the horse, except that it's yeah, reversed. The horse so the, the horse yeah. is the Yeah, I think exactly. we talked about this. Yeah. Like, uh, Have we? Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. you know, the the man is supposed to ride the horse. That That's where everybody gets where they're going. You know, that's the right way to do things. But what tends to happen is that the horse rides the man and the horse is too heavy for the man and then nobody can go anywhere, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, that's that's kind of what ends up happening here, I think, in a sense. You know, you have you find the a, a way to defeat your nafs, to defeat your ego and to conquer yourself. And mm-hmm. what you do instead is you take that weapon and you hand it to the ego and you let the, the ego like defeat you even more. And now you've yeah. you completely like succumb to it. So it, yes. it's a, it's a very like, I don't know. That's not good. You know, you, you it's uh, yeah. No, it's interesting that, like, the, you know, one of the biggest, like, thematic emphases of Sufism, like, especially, like, you know, or not especially, but certainly in Shadowly Sufism and many other modalities of Sufism, like, a huge emphasis is, like, yeah, self-negation, uh, right? Like, the, to, the, mm-hmm. like to, to kill the self, basically, to slay oneself. Um, yeah, either you know, through, like, being, like, an aesthetic, like, yeah. you know, like, you renounce the world and worldliness and all that, or like in these sort of like trance states that people develop, you know, these like, like the dervishes, the world, you know, the famous whirling dervishes and dicker and like a kind of chanting and and so on. Like there's a lot of work that people put in to defeat their egos. And and this group seems to be focused on elevating one particular man's ego so that everyone else can kind of bask in its glow that that, yes that i i that's what i tend to find with a lot of these esoteric kind of groups and thinkers and so on you know i i i'm very interested in the general like metaphysics and the talk about that sort of stuff i find that really i like to find new angles to think about things and all that kind of stuff so i appreciate that aspect of things um because i 
I, honestly, a lot of the time they, they teach me things, you know, like I do find that beneficial, but they just take it too far. So, often, you know, they just can't hold it in check. Well, again and again. yeah, and what you're saying, like, I remember, I think many people have like quoted this, but and I don't know who the original quote is attributed to, probably various people, but there's uh, in uh, Clusheri, you know, his famous uh, epistle on Sufism, uh, Rasella Clusheria. Uh, this is, you know, from, he was uh, from Nishapur. But, mm-hmm. you know, he has a, a quote uh, about like how uh, Sufis like walk on the edge of a sword, like on one side is paradise and the other side is hellfire. So there's like really like a very old understanding that like through like the in Sufism in like the sort of uh, the Taraka pursuit, there's like a special danger you know, when you're getting into the sort of right. esoteric dimension of things or like, you know, the, the Sufi practice that mm-hmm. has, you know, that's especially dangerous because that can like uh, create like a, a greater temptation than if you were, you know, just sort of uh, following the law here aspect of things and not trying to pursue the bat and yeah, uh, the outward. You know, it's yeah, a, it's yeah. a little yeah. it's a little like diving into like, you know, psychedelics and like a ceremonial kind of thing. Like chase, if you're somebody with a big ego trying to chase like the ultimate enlightenment with it yes. then mm-hmm. you're running a higher risk than you know choosing not to do that or or even just doing it without these like kind of spiritual expectations like and this goal of i'm going to become enlightened and stuff yeah, just like recreational yeah yeah in a way because like and now it's funny because like the more like new agey thing that is kind of being tied in with a therapeutic kind of transcendental kind of thing so it's actually being associated with being like the healthier thing to do it than um just going to like a rave or something like that so uh but that actually might be more (laughs) kind of like spiritually or you know psychologically uh perilous because you know especially if you're like one of these billionaires that's doing it because then you can imagine how gassed up they can get and like their ego will just spiral out of control and they'll think that they're because they think they're on the path of becoming like perfect bliss, like balance, harmony, whatever, and mm-hmm. chasing that that uh, the kind of an I don't know an existential. You know, it's actually high. interesting because like if you t- like suke, I mean that can mean b- different things. Like there's different concepts of the soul in Islam. You know, like uh, the ruh is the spirit. So maybe you could think of the suke and psychedelics as being the ruh, like that type of spirit. But there's also mm-hmm. a different way of thinking of the soul. You know, which is the nafs. You know, the self. It's so in a way, like yeah. I think that psychedelics oftentimes contrary to what they say, even though there might be like some element of ego destruction that experienced some psychedelic experiences, I almost feel like generally speaking, it's an ex- in the way that it manifests, especially like in these like current generation of psychedelic boosters and these sort of like tech bros who like are dabbling in this type of thing. It's like an accelerant to their ego. Yeah, an ego like, not something. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It like, clarifies their, their nafs, like not their, their spirit. But um, mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that because uh, one of the like Ian Dallas is famously like very obscure about like his sort of conversion process and like his, you know, his past and like he's like a, you know, sort of a private person or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as of course you want to be as if you're trying to position yourself as like a kutub. But, you know, he did write this book called The Book of Strangers, which is kind of like a fictionalized, like a semi-autobiographical, but like heavily fictionalized like account of like his own initiation. It's about like a guy. The main character is called like the clerk. Um, I put this in the work, okay. Bowie, but I know, like, you know, he's written a ton of books. Like, again, he used to be a playwright. 
he's still, uh, you know, uh, he's like written very prodigiously like about Wagner and like all these stuff. Like, I think he wrote a book called like the new Wagnerian, like, you know, it's just like all time. Bro, just back. chill with those. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Already, he like, loves man. it. Um, I thought Betty Ford Aquino <laughs> was out of control with the Wagner love. But this no, he, yeah, he's a, he's a total fangirl for, for Wagner. But yeah, in this book, he talks about the character, the clerk. He kind of works at this uh, university, like the state university library. And he works under this guy called the Keeper of Archives at the State University Library, uh, which is, you know, an acronym of, of Kasul, who's like kind of his master. Right. And he. Sees, oh, I did. Yeah. That's, oh, you did. Wow. Yeah, have you read this before? I, 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 I did read that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't put that together. That's man, it, that book is. Uh, I don't know. It's very like, look at me, look at me, look how clever I am kind of. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's just not well written, though. So it's like yeah. a combination of the two. Like, it yes. is awkward. It's interesting that he highlights, actually, to go back to the Fellini connection when, like, the, you know, it's kind of a, an epistolatory uh, novel where it's, like, the journals, kind of, the journal of the clerk, but also the, the embedded journal of Kasul, who, Kasul is very interesting, like, his job is also, like, to, to, like, kind of assemble, like, psychological profiles of the people who he works with, you know, and he's, like, analyzing them and, like, describing their, like, behavior and, like, how they're all, like, dissatisfied, you know, even though they're, like, brilliant academics, you know, he has, like, these psychological profiles of them, like, we're all, like, in a circle, and, like, that's kind of what prompts him to leave and go on his Sufi journey, and then the clerk, who's kind of supposed to be Ian Dallas, like, follows after him, but, yeah, Kasul, there's this one part where he describes his first encounter with, like, his master, um, and there's this interesting part where he's trying, there's like a, it's funny cause a lot of it is a, in some ways prescient cause in his library, he has like a, an automatic translation mas- machine. And so he's like kind of doing research and like getting into the, getting into Sufism kind of like, you know, cause his heart is, is so restless and dissatisfied with like his existence. And, uh, he sees all these intelligent people around him, but they're all deeply unhappy and they're all dependent on drugs and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so he is reading this one document and he, you know, like a, a Sufi text and he inputs it into like the automatic translator. And it's like, uh, the blessed Imam al-Junaid, peace be upon him, has said, if I knew that under the sky there was a science in this world nobler than that which seekers of Marifa contemplate, I would have engaged myself to buy it and would have toiled in the best way to uh, acquire it until I had done so. And then he says, like, there followed some coding in the word Marifa, repeated in Arabic and Roman script indicating the word was not within the structuring of the translator. I smiled at this. Like, so the chat GPT is like, error, error, can't process Marifa, which is like Gnosis, <laughs> you know? Like, because uh, it's like too fucking like radical for, you know, real. this like, uh, this Orwellian kind of pastiche that he exists in. And then he has this encounter with the master. You know, he's walking. That's exactly what it's like, though, by the way, to convert. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's exactly ab- what it's like. Totally. Well, yeah, this, uh, I think that Tom and I can all relate to this, to, to, can both relate to this experience where, you know, he said, Marifa, indeed. I was talking to myself and saw a group of students look at me and giggle. I waved to them and went to the gardens. One of my favorite places was the aviary. From there, one had a fine view of the city, and I liked to sit looking out in the sweeping panorama with the afternoon sun filling the sky with color. At sunset, the air would suddenly fill with song, and from the aviary would come a whir of wings as the birds flutter around their cages till the sun went down. It was then that I became aware that I was sharing my bench with someone else. I turned and saw the nomad I had found the night before in my garden. He seemed wrapped in thought, and I was uncertain whether I could disturb him. And in any case, what was there to say to him? I went back to gazing at the golden sky, although I was now acutely conscious of his presence beside me. After a moment, he muttered something into his beard and gave a deep sigh. Then, quite distinctly, I heard him say, Martha. I shot around. Slowly, his head (laughs) turned to meet my gaze. I realized that my mouth was open. I shut it hastily. Marifa, he repeated. That was the word, wasn't it? 
Telepathy. My mind raced to reject the strange gift of mystery that he seemed to offer with such ease. How do you? I could not finish the sentence. I broke off and sat, dumb and determined not to be hypnotized or mind-read or to give into any such extrasensory. At the word extrasensory, I seemed to relax a little. It gave my mind the kind of reassurance I needed that while there was a zone of consciousness we didn't understand, there was an unprejudiced and admirable methodology at work on it. The nomad smiled. He shook his head, and it is as if in negation of my thoughts. It's not like that, he said, and slowly shut his eyes, as if tired from a long journey. I give up. I meant it. I meant it because, however my thoughts went, they ended in confusion, contradiction, and value judgment. Eventually, he starts, to, as conversation this guy a little bit further, he says, like, uh, when I in turn tried to question him, he would smile and simply say, information, is that all you want? I realized that neither argument nor discussion interested him. Exhausted with my own cleverness and his unyielding detachment, I offered myself as his pupil. This seemed to amuse him enormously, but he rose and stood over me, his expression almost severe. It's not like that, he said again. How should it be, I asked, still smoldering at the failure of my dialectics. Put your head on the ground, was his unexpected reply. Before you, I asked, as if the nice. idea was absurd, although I realized that I was quite prepared to do so and thought that perhaps this was some desert ritual that marked my acceptance of his authority. Certainly not. He seemed to find this distasteful and frowned at the idea. There is no God, I said emphatically, and to my astonishment, he merely nodded. Quite right. Then why? Because that is surrender. Uh, which is an interesting interpretation <laughs> um, of Salah that, like, it's the fundamental act of surrender and, like, it's irrelevant to God, but, you know, whatever. So, well, uh, he's, he's kind of playing a game, right? Like, with the Shahada, yeah. no God. Yeah, God, of course. Right? Like, I think that's what's going on there. Yeah, and I he even know, connected that's, that. That's to pretty cute. Yeah, he even connected that to, to Nietzsche and, and Heidegger, too, where he, I think he famously said once, um, you know, uh, Heidegger was the one who, uh, you know, said Allah after Nietzsche's uh, La Ilaha, you know, because Nietzsche said, like, there's no God. So, you know, he did part of the Shahada, but, you know, Heidegger was the one to, like, complete it. It's like, well, it existed before both of them, but... If yeah, this but, guy was like a 15 year old on a discord server that uh, you'd be like encouraging the creativity, you're like, okay, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'll yeah. figure himself out at some point. Yeah. This that's is a true. weird phase he's going through. Yeah. But, one of my yeah. students like man. wrote that, like, you know, cause you know, sometimes when I teach like Islamic stuff, I often do a creative project because you know, that's something that I feel like is sometimes lacking, like among, you know, younger Muslims is like, they have a reluctance to be creative. So, but if a student handed that into me, I'd be like, wow, what a good job. Like, you know, you really captured like <laughs> the vibe of like a Sufi hagiography. Cause like some of that stuff, like the telepathy, for instance, that's like a common trope in like these hagiographical writings, you know, of course. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, honestly, what that reads like is a boomer who can't handle his Moroccan hash. You know what I mean? Like it sounds uh, like yeah, incredibly yeah. funny <laughs> that you mentioned that also, cause this is kind of what I also like wanted to bring up story. where, Later on, like kind of the clerk, you know, he the clerk reads that journal from Kasul and, you know, uh, he Kasul has left the library. And so the clerk, you know, who's sort of the self insert character, he goes and chases after him, trying to find him and trying to find his master. Right. Eventually he goes to uh, Morocco, I think. Yeah, he went to Aswan. Uh, right. So I don't think he says necessarily where. It is. Is that in Morocco? I'm not sure. But anyway, it's definitely he in North did go Africa. To, he did go to Morocco in 68. Yeah. in Dallas. Okay, that's why there. that popped in my head. Okay. I yeah. assume this is Morocco, but yeah. So uh, he says, on arrival at Aswan, I went directly to the hotel and changed the cooler clothes. A friend of mine had given me the address of a man he assured me was the best hashish merchant in the city, and I hurried <laughs> to the old quarter clutching the address on a scrap of paper. I found a child who agreed to take me there after I had managed to subdue his enthusiastic imitation of smoking dope. He danced ahead of me as if luring me on with the magic word. We arrived at a small shop on a flight of stairs lined with beggars. I gave the boy too much money and he scuttled away before I changed my mind. The place was lit by lamps, although it was daylight outside. So anyway, yeah, it's kind of like this hashish den and then there's a guy inside who is called Nasser 
and uh, interesting. Not no no relation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anyway, I so, assume, so yeah, 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 such but, a common name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, it's a Nasir, I guess, because there's an eye. So he offers him some, uh, you know, hashish, and he says, uh, "Now you will smoke for the very first time." This smoke is the best in the whole world. No imitation. <laughs> he laughed and put the match to the yellow pile of hashish in a small clay bowl. I drew deeply on it, held it, and sank slowly among the cushions. Even before I exhaled, my ears were singing. He looked at me with approval. That is the way. I made to hand the pipe back to him, but he motioned me to finish it. Sit up, he ordered me. It is not for lying back stoned. No, this hashish is to see by. I will give you another pipe, and then you will understand. I don't give this to everyone. He indicated the people in the corner. This is serious smoke. Wait and see. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, You know, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had certainly never experienced anything like it. He gave me three pipes, mixing each one differently and watching me carefully all the time. He drank his tea, turned on some music and sat again beside me uh, among the cushions. I looked at my watch and to my astonishment, three hours had passed. He ordered more tea. I found that I could not move, even if I'd wanted to, and barely had command over my arm to lift the glass in my mouth and drink. Now, he said, looking closely at me, I am going to give you the important one. Do you want it? Why not? I managed to giggle, but the laughter came from the stomach muscles, for I felt attached, disembodied, a floating head. He lit the pipe, took a quick puff, and passed it to me. As I drew on it, I was vaguely conscious of his other visitors departing. Nasir sighed deeply. I'd like to buy some of this if I may. He waved his hand as if this was already understood. You will buy it, and you will smoke it, and you will give it to your friends. They will come back the next day no. saying, give me more of Nasir's hash, and you no. will have dreams like you have never known. And when it is all finished, <laughs> he put his head close to mine. You'll find you are all alone. He laughed and got up to change the tape deck. So, That's when he put on the robot chicken DVD? Yeah. <laughs> my, my Moroccan vacation with Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, but anyway, so eventually he eventually says to him, you know, he says uh, he's uh, smoking this cease, and then he drinks some tea, and then he says, uh, do you want that I should say it? Shall I say the word? Always the truth. I do not lie. His accent seemed no longer quaint and roguish. He spoke with an authority that came from life. I nodded. No one else will say this to you. Just once. Then you must decide. He got up and shut the door, then came back to me. The shadow had left me, and I sat waiting on his word. As I had once sat in Kasul's office, gazing at the mandala. That's another thing. Like, Kasul's office has, like, this mandala on the wall, which is, again, kind of like this sort of Indian religion or Indian spirituality underneath the surface, you know, classical type of like the Arianism type of thing. But anyway, so Muslim, Muslim, Muslim. He tapped his heart in a gesture that reminded me of Dr. Arnu, an earlier character. I was helpless, high as I had ever been high in my life. I could only stare at him and register with what was left in my mind that I was trembling. How could I exchange one religion for another? What was the point? Christianity had failed, and what I saw of Islam seemed no different. Certainly the worship was nobly simple, and its inner teaching sublime, but what of those subjugated women, and what of its long bloody history? What of the sword? Yet none of these arguments that I had already filled my brain under Islam came either to my mind or to my tongue, and before I could attempt to formulate any response to my amazement, Nazir himself swept them aside. That is not Islam, and he reeled off a list of my social inequities. You do not find Islam lying about in the marketplace. Muslim, such a man is rare, very rare. So, again, this kind of idea that, like, you know, you're a real Muslim already, even yeah. before you've become, like, you know, become Muslim, yeah. you know, Muslims even before don't count. Yeah. you said the Shahada, you're still, like, more Muslim than, like, these average Muslims who have subjugated women and things like that. But it is interesting that after a while, you know, he smokes his weed, like, four times, and then it's, like, it's white. It's a golden white hashish. And then one day, you know, he unwraps it. He holds the pipe in his hands, but I did not fill it. I put it down. I covered the hashish, wrapped it in a large envelope, and set out for Nasir's, strangely elated and eager to see him. I handed him the package and told him I did not want it, nor did I want any money back. 
He stopped smoking. Uh, sorry, I had stopped smoking. He looked at me for a moment and then he frowned. You have given it up? No, it gave me up. His face filled with delight. Ah, it is the God that has taken it away from you. That is something else. That is very important. He put away the hashish and came back with a smell of small, a set of small ivory beads threaded with one long piece at the end. He gave them to me after holding them over a burning censer that fumed incense. You will find what you are seeking. So, you know, even though you need to go through this sort of psychedelic phase to get to like Marafa, eventually you still, even in this paradigm, you still like leave that behind eventually and you replace your weed pipe with your test bit in this sort of process. But it does seem like, you know, he's framing it as kind of like it was necessary. Right. So because this guy Mm -hmm. is like at first he's like, oh, you're not going to quit smoking, are you? But then he's like, no, I've reached the next level where I don't need to smoke. And he's like, oh, okay, like we're. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. You know what this kind of makes me think of is the the kind of trope of like the Lila Majnun story. Yeah. The lover who you know he's he's torn away from his beloved, and so he kind of goes crazy in the desert, and so that's that's sort of like a symbol that's used in a lot of Sufi lessons and teachings and so on. It's Mm -hmm, the idea of like bafflement and confusion that precedes reconnection with the beloved. Which yeah. is supposed to be God. It, there's not really supposed to be drugs involved, but I suppose. No. <laughs> yeah. Know, you, like, you know, everyone's journey is different or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, that's it's kind of cute. I, I, I don't find this too objectionable, to be honest. It's a little Orientalist. It's a little, you know, when was this written? The 70s or something? I think this was like, not, yeah, in the 70s. I think this might be one of his earliest books. And this is like yeah. the most autobiographical one. But yeah, no, it's, got it's got just that, like, like uh, post hippie, like Brian Jason. Like, yeah, exactly. Like Stuart Brand, like John Perry Barlow, like. Yeah. Like, admit a Native the psychedelic American medicine kind of man. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just have like a, just like a too slick kind of story about, you know, coming upon some mystical person. Yeah. Mind blown, man. I mean, sure. But to be fair, this is a novel, right? Like it's supposed to be fictionalized. It is a That's novel. True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is like a subtitled a novel. But this is like, yeah, because like the sort of details of like his relationship with, I mean, he would often talk about it like him in his statements and things like that. But like, you know, things like this, like what you get from this is still like kind of a, a puzzle piece that doesn't like exist. Like there's no real bio- autobiography that he wrote or anything like that, you know? Mm. So this is what people use to like, you know, this is like what people have to like fill in kind of his process and like his own sort of reflection on his conversion, like in a lot of ways that like he doesn't really, cause you know, he wanted to be that mysterious master for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. And, to, and that like, is sort of like a classic spy thing to like be very private about your background and then publish mm-hmm. a fictionalized thing. Like they love writing novels and stuff and yeah. then yeah. just letting people kind of run. Like you don't say anything. You're not really lying to them, but you're also like not correcting them in their, you know, when they kind of take what you're saying in your fiction and, and yeah, you know, like, Oh, well this is, I guess his autobiography or this is like how it happened with him on some level. And you, you just don't really correct their, their misapprehension you know no totally yeah. as an example of that i just got uh in the mail pretty rare book to find but i got uh jim fadiman's book who we talked about in our psychedelics episodes very much one of these kind of like sus lords but he wrote kind of a roman a clef about the 60s called the other side of hate but like h-a-i-g-h-t and oh. <laughs> it's like a lightly somewhat you know in a very merry prankster kind of way, uh, you know, kind of a somewhat fictionalized or really like a Robert Anton Wilson kind of way, 
you know, somewhat fictionalized uh, account of, you know, narrative of like a young scientist or psychologist in the 60s and like an entire subplot uh, kind of arc of the novel apparently is like a secret team of CIA operatives like hmm. operating in the Haight-Ashbury doing MK Ultra experiments on people. But it's like hmm. a novel, wink, wink, you know what I'm saying? Right, like. Right. So he's getting to like kind of have his cake and eat it too a little bit by kind of indulging what a lot of people suspect like maybe he would have been connected to or that what that what was going on in like mm-hmm. the summer of love but he's just kind of you know he's got that 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 thin kind of protective shield of uh, of fiction you know to sort of hide behind but also build the mystique at the same time mm-hmm, for sure yeah kind of many such cases yeah for sure. Like L. Ron Hubbard, all like the uh, all the Hubbards, Al Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard, like they're kind of highfalutin stories about you know their early life and all these weird things they may or may not have accomplished. Yeah, big theme with like intelligence operative types, um, and just like aristocratic types too. Like they they kind of speak in this kind of code where it's like if you know you know what they're really saying Mm -hmm. because you know like the the you know the the gossip that's like not that not everyone is privy to you know so like it, if you're reading Absolutely. it just like some random schmo who walks into a bookstore picks it up and reads it you don't pick up on what you know if you're like in the inner circle that you might like understand yeah. is being said you know yeah yeah it it is worth mentioning by the way about Ian Dallas that he does come from somewhat of a not i guess a super high bourgeois or like gentry background but you know he's like a Scottish he's from like a Scottish Highlander family and he does have one kind of famous ancestor uh E.S. Dallas Aeneas Sweetland Dallas who I don't know exactly what if he was a grandfather great-grandfather or whatever but he was a writer um and the Hmm. son of a a plantation owner in Jamaica actually um Hmm, okay yeah and then moved and then E.S. Dallas he was born in Jamaica and then moved back to Britain and then uh, wrote a lot of stuff about like poetry, philosophy, um, what is described here as eclectic psychology. So I wonder if he was dabbling in like spiritualism type stuff. But I guess um, he also, oh, yeah, yeah he, he produced two volumes of a projected four volume work named The Gay Science, a title borrowed from Provençal okay. Troubadours. So maybe some growl. Growl uh, interest going on well, here. Nietzsche, was it the right? gay I science mean, Nietzsche? Yeah, or I guess maybe Nietzsche took the title from something else. Uh, I, that's where I think associated I guess with. it was borrowed from like a troubadour song. Oh, maybe, know? yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. but the, it seems like the Nietzsche reference is the first thing that pops to well, mind. Well, did he write it before or after Nietzsche? Because this, this guy is was in the, 18, the 19th century. This was in, the eight, this was in 1866. Yeah. Oh, so he wrote oh. his gay science before Nietzsche wrote his gay science. Um, wow, yeah. Yeah. A lot of gay science going. Yeah, there's people were into this gay. Yeah, a lot of gay science. Yeah, yeah. There, that's the gay science when you take out your uh, your ribs to. What? I actually, I'm not. I, I haven't read a whole lot of Nietzsche. I find him pretty difficult to parse. But like, what is the, what is the gay? What is that supposed to mean? 
I actually I couldn't know, actually. tell you off the top of my head what like the gay science is uh, meant to be. Yeah, like I remember I've looked at the gay science like fairly recently. I remember that was the one where he speculates again uh, on the theme of anti-Semitism. I think that's the one where he talks about like how like Socrates, like because for Nietzsche, like Socrates is the source of like everything bad, right? And he like destroyed like the Dionysian like you know irrational spirit, you know, with his it, sort of intellectualism. So and, when there's yeah. just one bad guy who caused all the problems, yeah. isn't that always yeah. like yeah. well. Yeah. Aristotle. And yeah, there's also the sort of ethnic essentialism because he's like, he's talking about, I remember there's a great line about Aristotle where he says like, so much uh, like suffering has been caused by this one man studying in Egypt. And then he like has in parentheses like among the Jews in Egypt, question mark. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, like was, there's a like he, I think in that work and then like in a bunch of others, he speculates like that Aristotle and Socrates like were Jewish in some way or like had been like Jewish educated. And like that's why like they, you know, it's weird because people always say like, oh, and Nietzsche's later work, you know, he wasn't in his, like now he, he was yeah. like, you know, but anyway. Yeah. So um, I, I just looked this up, the gay science, the origins yeah. of this. This is actually kind of interesting, um, mm-hmm. and I know anyone, whenever this happens on a podcast and the hosts don't know what a thing is, if you know the reference, it drives you crazy. So for anyone who knows this, like, here you yeah. go. This is, oh, that's true. Yeah, just relax. Point. We're going to, we'll correct it here. So anyway, it's, it's the, uh, the earliest use of the term is from Rabelais, from oh. Gargantuan Pantagruel. So that's not from is, Troubadours. Yeah, that's very early well, modern. Yeah. Um, it is from Troubadours. He took it from Troubadours. He oh, took he it did, I see. A so Provençal expression gay saber i don't know if that's how you mm-hmm. pronounce that but it's a technical skill that is required for poetry writing and then it was later used by uh, ralph uh, waldo emerson and then it says here on wikipedia for the the gay science the nietzsche book and es dallas ah. um, and so it was a deliberately it was used also by thomas carlyle in a deliberately inverted form as the dismal science which was to criticize the emerging discipline of economics by comparison Ooh. with poetry. So oh, I think wow. dismal science is a kind of... A riff sense, on the gay science. It is a riff on it, but it, I think it helps to highlight what does the gay science mean, right? So if the dismal science is focusing on like a kind of like reductionist, materialist sort of thing of like everything can be quantified, that sort of... Uh interpretation interesting that is another kind of parallel transcendent maybe spiritualist uh, yeah it's it's more like it's like idealism versus materialism perhaps that resonates a lot i mean obviously uh you know ian dallas is an admirer of nietzsche this is an interesting connection Mm -hmm. with his uh, family actually you know not to say this like means anything necessarily like or you know that like there is well i mean he himself was aware i found a um uh, a thing on D1 Press, uh, Ian okay, Dallas's yeah. collected works, where in the opening to it, he quotes, he does a block quote and says, my forebear, the philosopher E.S. Dallas, in his work on aesthetics in 1866, yeah. wrote, and gives this long thing about uh, Shakespeare, uh, basically. Ah. And also mentions in this opening, Ronald Lang, the psychiatrist, once mm-hmm. said to me, the only reason I go on psychoanalyzing my patients is in the hope that just one of them in his narration will reveal to me something that will help to make sense of my own life. So he was friends with Artie Lang back in the swing 60s. I wonder if one of it the characters in that novel is based on R.D. Lang. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, because you mentioned like group therapy, there's like group therapy stuff going right. on. Kind of, like, yeah, within the, uh, within the like the evil university, like the evil kind of like Orwellian university. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I have to mm-hmm. imagine that's in 
maybe not a direct reference, but it's got to be informed by that. Like that, you know, Artie Lang was really popular in that yeah. sort of milieu at the time. And he ran like, that like what? The, wasn't it called like the Free University of London or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah, maybe. Had, yeah. yeah. Had, like Alan like Ginsberg brought over. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that's really why I read that. Not to say that there's anything. I mean, there are allegations that, uh, about him, like, for instance, in that critique of him where it says, you know, he like always associated with the royal family and neo-Nazis and also like ex-CIA agents, quote unquote ex. But, uh, you know, this is just like <laughs> unsourced allegations. So, you know, that's not necessarily fundamentally sus, but it does show like the milieu that like he was a part of, you know, it shows like because usually there's like kind of this suggestion of like a break, really, like the, the his later uh, Maravatun persona isn't really super countercultural, like in the same sort of uh, ostensible way. But mm -hmm. there's like a very clear like line that comes through like in the novel, I think that you don't get like a lot of the time uh, in his statements and things like that. So that's like really what I think is. Yeah, I mean, he comes from like a somewhat yeah. kind of like a literary family, like a somewhat liter yeah. notable literary family, basically, that had interest in things like, you know, spirituality and psychology and philosophy and all yeah. these very heady topics. So it's like not super surprising that he would emerge as this young man, like in the kind of counterculture scene and then also get drawn to something religious, like on top of that, he seemed to be always like very philosophically uh, inclined and focused. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a type of person. And I know this because I kind of am one of these types of people <laughs> that finds religion through this sort of, uh, philosophical and like yeah. literary kind of means like where it's absolutely yeah you know materialism at one point was very appealing to me i was a marxist at one time mm -hmm. uh, but i found it unsatisfying and so you start to explore alternatives and what yeah i landed on was kind of islam as a vehicle for sort of a balancing act between yes yeah, si similar kind of yeah like, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. the extremes don't don't account for everything. You kind of have to find a, something that is able to synthesize things in a, in a, a way that makes sense. So Islam yeah. works for me in that way. And yes. uh, I think it's very I think it's that's a good thing. I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily like necessarily leads to this sort of like weird elitism that we see with Ian Dallas and people of his kind. But um, it's it's a very clear well, threat when you start to go in those waters i think well i mean actually i feel like you and i probably there's a little bit of a, a contrast really because yeah i mean i feel like they're the same way you know like i wasn't i didn't have like a sheikh who was like bringing me in to islam you know like oh, yeah, i like i said you know we yeah. like we were like learning how to pray from youtube before we were even going to the to the, to the masjid <laughs> yeah. you know right so like yeah. that's very different i think ian dallas actually had a, a slightly different experience you know where there was like not probably in the way that he represents it in that book, you know, but that he was like, you know, the student of uh, a Shadley Sheikh. And so I feel like he was kind of brought in by like a, a charismatic persona, you know, and certainly, yeah, sure. yeah other people were brought in. But I think, you know, I, I think there is definitely, I think in a lot of ways, and many people have become lifelong Muslim. I mean, Hamza Yusuf is incredibly knowledgeable, you know, incredibly erudite and like definitely a good, you know, good Muslim. And this is why I think, you know, this uh, like, the whole idea of like saying people oh aren't really Muslims like we have like a very strong principle against that which I think is like a very good like piece of wisdom that we avoid like suggesting that other like professed Muslims aren't Muslim you know That's like right. the, the like Prophet said if yeah. if one brother accuses his if one Muslim accuses his brother of not being Muslim or in other words makes taxfir of his brother one of them is not a Muslim 
Yeah. Meaning Ooh. he's either correct or he's thrown himself out of Islam by doing that. that yeah, goes hard. exactly. Goes so hard. I think that principle is like very good, you know, and like that's uh, and like very it important is, for yeah. having like a robust understanding of like your dean. But the puts a limiting on, on Kufr jacketing, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> jacket. You don't want to jacket everyone. Yeah. But yes, I think, you know, there is like it is like kind of and I think that, you know, many uh, great Muslims have come. And that's a very traditional way of coming at it, like, you know, coming into these things like Sufism is like a great uh, it, like a core tradition of like Islam has been articulated for and practiced for right. centuries. But like, that's not suspicious yeah. to me. No, not at all. You know, yeah. And like, in. Yeah. And uh, it, and like, no, not per se. I mean, again, like when right. we have like, you know, uh groups like the Marabatun, like, I think that, you know, people's experiences with having him as a sheikh, like, what, how he kind of conducted himself, like, there's, it seems like there was a lot of, like, class of personalities, a lot of sort of weird, like, yeah, like, high control elements. Right. I mean, traditional Sufism, That's where the suspicious seem, stuff comes in. Yeah. Traditional Sufism could also be, like, high control, as it's described, I think, but, uh, you know, I think, like, uh, there's, there's definitely a difference between, and I'm not, so, uh, I mean, I'm not going to impugn that model fundamentally, but I think, there is uh, some difference between that model, even though it can lead you to the same place. There's a different, like, I think it's kind of a very, almost very unique thing in a way, what we experience where, like, we're learning about Islam, like, from reading books, like, on our own beforehand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what kind of uh, um, response do you get when people ask you, like, how you came to Islam? Like, I try to convey that it was through study, just personal study and so on. And that there's always, like, a kind of a hesitation to, like, oh okay like that's not a cool story i guess to people so they're always um, like looking for like this sort of like well you know, I, uh, yeah i have kind of like a middle like i actually kind of have like a decent like i hate telling it because I'm, I'm sick of telling it like because i've told it yeah. many times but like <laughs> yeah. i kind of do have like an okay like conversion story you know like uh because like i kind of it, like it, it's kind of it kind of threads the needle between like you know the reading books thing and uh the like uh, sort of like mystical like you know the the strange visitation of a mysterious nomad like on a bench who's like reading your minds uh because mm -hmm. like you know i sort of had like a serendipitous like you know i was like on vacation with my family like in sort of a very small like beach town on the island and you know they're like i had forgotten to bring a book with me and so they had like one bookstore on this island and uh it like had like most of the books it had were like you know like uh the problem with liberals or like how conservatives <laughs> ruin everything like these like <laughs> shitty like airport like books by like yeah, msnbc yeah. anchors and stuff yeah. uh but they also had religious books and uh like you know they had the like the cortex of, they had like the torah they had the bible and they had the quran so i was like i'll buy this quran and that's like kind of how i started to read the quran uh so wow. it's like kind of like a serendipity like you know and that, it kicked around my apartment for like a while like before i started like you know and we would actually like my friends and i would like flip open random pages of it and like read them and like you know like remark on like you know how like impressive it was or like you know like uh marvel at like certain phrases but like i never i didn't really start reading the whole thing through until what was like, the translation yeah. do you remember uh, N.J. Dawoods, which I still recommend. And I still oh, think okay. it's one of the best translations by, I think, a non-Muslim. Um, in fact, I think it's by a Jew. Um, but oh, I, I, I didn't know that. I that. never really um, looked into it. It sounds like a Muslim name. It's so just I the penguin. It's the Penguin Classics uh, translation. Um, okay, cool. So, yeah, huh. but um, yeah, I still think that that uh, is. A, yeah, he was an Iraqi Jew. Um, but I still think that is a great translation of the Quran. Uh, I mean, I, I rarely say like, just read this one translation. Cause I feel like, you know, at this point, like I'm like, you may, you want to like, you know, like sample some, see which one you like, you know, maybe I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. Um, um, I've been, you know, working through the Quran with my wife. She's sort of more recently converted. So yeah, I'm kind of like 
you know. No, I'm doing the same, and I'm. Yeah, we're using the study Quran actually because I feel like the footnotes like are helpful. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, that's a good. But, idea. That's kind of the next step where I want to go with it. But what we did during like Ramadan was we each had our own translations and we kind of like went through them together as oh, we read cool. and triangulated the meaning. I think that's really the way to go for English, uh, you know, English readers to, you just want to kind of go through as many translations as you can. They all have their advantages and they all have their weaknesses. And um, you're not really going to understand the meaning from just one. You're going to get yeah. a, something isn't going to be the same in that as it would be in the Arabic. So you want to triangulate between as yeah. many translations as possible. I mean, my number one word of advice is like to learn Arabic. Like, yeah. Uh, Arabic. yeah. Well, um, sure. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not as di- like, you know, I mean, that's, it's it's hard. I was wondering the other day, like, you know, I was thinking like they say like no language is harder than another. But I was like doing some. I mean, you saw me in the group chat talking to Khalid, our, our, another, our other Khalid who's been on a You Can't Win, right? Uh, try saying like, what is this person saying? Because mm-hmm. I'm doing this translation from Arabic, like our Arabic audio right now. And I was thinking as I was doing that, I was like, Arabic is harder than English. It just is. But I don't know. That might be, you know, people say that no language is harder than another. It's probably just my bias. But in my frustration with like. You know, and even our, like, even Khalid is like a native speaker. was like, I have no idea what the hell they're saying. <laughs> like, but, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it is difficult, but, um, so I won't say it's not, but it is, it is possible. And like, you can definitely, um, you know, find like classes for Muslims to learn to read the Quran. And I think it's a very valuable thing and it will, it will help you not be beholden in a way to, again, like, I don't want to like impugn like traditional systems of authority, but being able to read Arabic is helpful because it will help you not be beholden to like what people tell you something says, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Quran or something else. But anyway, that's just my, you know, uh, you know, advice too. Um, and I mean, of course it's a goal for all Muslims. So I don't need me to tell them that like everyone wants to read Arabic, you know, it's like, but so I apologize for even saying this, like, you know, uh, pat advice. Uh, but I think, yeah, the point about reading multiple translations is definitely good, but in the vein of like correcting, uh, things I did want to say, actually, I was incorrect about the South Africa thing. I had like, I guess I got confused with the Spain thing. And this is what I think I was confusing it with was that in South Africa, the Mrabatun is particularly popular among black Africans, actually. So Mm. not Indians, but among black Africans. Uh, So it is still a convert movement, but it like black Africans actually are the people who are mainly uh, members of it. You can find a bunch of articles about this, about how like he emphasized kind of like the uh, black indigeneity, uh, like sort of, it's kind of in a similar way to the way that black Islam worked in the United States, where it's like a white or, you know, kind of a, a resistance to like the apartheid system. Like that's kind of the, mm. the conversion na- narrative, like, you know, uh, like return to sort of like an indigenous blackness. Um, but yeah, that's uh, interesting. Interesting. yeah, there were allegations of a misappropriation of funds directed against a black African Marabatoon member in the early 1990s that led to a significant drop in the number of black African Marabatoon members nationally. But in the South African context, as leaders have exhorted followers not to vote on the grounds that voting is not permissible for Muslims, according to ESSAC. Yeah, I was personally able to verify the low number of black African Muslims in the movement's Cape Town branch at present through a visit to their Friday Zikr at the Stegman Road Mosque in Claremont uh, in June. 2005. So I think, yeah, at first it was very popular among black African converts. According to this guy uh-huh. uh, in the book, Global Flows, Local Appropriations, um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, uh, Facets of Secularization and Re-Islamization Among Contemporary Cape Muslims uh, by Sindra Bangstad, you know, which is available to read free of charge on Google Books. Yeah. So he said that the, the number has like declined because there was some kind of like, seems like there was some kind of flap possibly that had like a, you know, a dimension that was interpreted as being like unwelcoming. I, I wonder um, yeah. what the relationship the was between the the Muslims of South Asian heritage and the Murabitun, 
especially like the black Murabitun in South Africa. That I would be very curious to know if there was any kind of animosity that was stoked, you know, because of mm-hmm. the the whole thing with the Murabitun of being like, oh, we're converts, and that makes us. I, they don't directly say this, but there is this idea of like we're converts to the true Islam and then, and other mm-hmm. Muslims are on this like degraded kind of like, uh, yeah. And know, we all know how daisies feel about their ownership of Islam. Sorry. No, uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> joking. I'm joking. I love my daisy brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, but, well, yeah. Uh, the, speaking of going to exotic places, uh, the Marabatun actually kind of branched out to a few interesting destinations like in i think the 80s and the 90s like yeah, one was chiapas, chiapas mexico right? yeah, yeah, yeah and they they yeah, were in the same area as the zapatista rebels basically yeah. and i think they still have their website is down now but it was their mexican website was up as late as i think 2022 um so there might still be a small community there and i mean that one strikes me as quite random because I think there's a small population of there. There's a certain amount there's a certain Lebanese population in Mexico, like Carlos Slim, for example. And so they have that kind of tiny Muslim community. But besides that, there's really not, you know, a, a big Islamic footprint in Mexico at all. So, and then, well, it's growing actually. Yeah. I, I okay. happen to know some people who are involved in like Dawa with um, like Spanish speaking populations. And so like they do Dawa stuff. Dawa is like kind of missionary mm-hmm. Islamic version of that. So like it, it's, it's one of the gro- fastest growing um, demographics, I think yeah. in terms of Muslim populations and perhaps even just like religious demographics as a whole is like Hispanic uh, Muslims. It's, it's a really interesting phenomenon to me. I, so I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if that has any, the Murabi tomb, I, like they're selling a very specific thing, you know. So it's hard to like lump whatever's going on with them in with just what's going on with like Muslim conversions, generally speaking. So I no, don't know sure, wh- sure. what's going on with the Chiapas thing. My assumption would be they donated something, they built something, you know, they they put some money up or something like that, and. Uh, got these people to uh, convert and maybe it was even just a nominal thing. I, I'm kind of casting, uh, I'm, this is all conjecture, but it's just my first impressions that whenever I see something like that, some weird little group manages to convert uh, like a community of very poor, isolated people. I mean, maybe it's just on the charisma kind of level, but sometimes those people just have money and they throw some money around and everyone's like, okay, well, this guy... He wants us to follow his thing and he's got a lot of money. So let's just play along with this, you know? Yeah, I read I had read something about it that actually they were doing a lot of outreach to um, some of the indigenous populations in uh, around Chiapas who were a lot of them were actually Protestant. I guess it's Mm. one of the least Catholic regions of Mexico where I think it's like 65% Catholic, like give or take. But there already were a lot of inroads with uh, people having converted to Protestantism. And that is, that is also something that's growing in like Latin America and in communities here as right. well. Yeah, it's that's like people true. who were Mormonism Catholic too. going to like Pentecostalism or something like that. Yeah. Um, or these newer Christian churches. So I guess they had some success sort of recruiting uh, some of these people who had been Protestants to convert um, and stuff like that. And I think they had, they had some kind of like interactions with the Zapatistas, but not like, I think they actually... 
Yeah, I had read that them, they, didn't they like. I think well, I think they, they supported yeah. them, and I think they even tried to re- like convert one of the yeah. commanders of the Zapatistas, oh, and I yeah. think it didn't work out ultimately. But there were interesting inroads. Another place that they were active was in Chechnya. Like mm. apparently, they were mm. really into going into places that like conflict areas. Um, and I assume this is in the 1990s during like the kind of civil wars there, mm-hmm. and. I haven't been able to find exactly what, like, a lot of information. There's much more writing about their presence in Mexico than in Chechnya. It just is mentioned in passing that they were kind of there. So it's hard know. to imagine that adding up to much, you know, like, they're already Muslim there. There's already, it, like, a yeah. long standing Sufi tradition as well. And then you're competing with Saudi money. So. Yeah, yeah, because the Saudis were flooding kind of a, you know, a specific type, uh, their specific type of, right, like a kind of Wahhabi flavor, kind of building these mosques in Chechnya, and then some of Mm -hmm. those became kind of, I would say, almost like intelligence hubs to, like, train, like, foreign fighters who would then go on to fight in, like, Syria and Libya and all those kind of things. Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder where they fit in that mix. Like, because on the one hand... They are pretty outspoken about opposing, like, terrorism, right? And also, of course, and maybe maybe it's a kind of a good time on the back end here maybe to talk a little more in depth about, like, their economic platform and, like, what exactly their beliefs were around money because it was, like, the central animating thing kind of of, uh, of Ian Dallas's, you know. Yeah, her, their, like, things yeah. in Indonesia is, like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Like, because that was where they kind of tried to get... Uh, the or sorry, yeah, in Malaysia. Did, Malaysia, they yeah, they got a as well? province. It was both, yeah. yeah. Malaysia, they they managed to convince uh, Mahathir Mohamed, the prime minister of Malaysia, that mm-hmm. this whole gold, they got into yeah. a whole gold bug thing. Like it seems yeah, to me, like yeah. they started off on this like post hippie kind of mm-hmm. new age like Sufi. Yeah, and then they became like, gold bugs. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they kind of went all in on the libertarian gold bug thing with like we need to go back to gold-based currency this is how it was in in islam it was the most important thing that the prophet yeah. cared about apparently was the that fundamental the, institution yeah that like is the lived experience yeah exactly uh, yeah so that managed yeah. to convince uh mahatir muhammad and so he was promoting their ideas and stuff from i mean he was the leader of a country so they managed yeah. to get pretty big fish there um, this is like, you know, when Helga Zepp LaRouche convinced she to do One Belt, One Road. Uh, no, mm-hmm. but like, I mean, I think in this case, actually, like it was more of a direct influence, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much it really amount, what it ma- amounted to, but uh, yeah, I mean, they they, they did, definitely did hook a big fish there. And uh, there was this paper that, um, that was in these notes, you know, that was talking about some uh, banking interests that were starting to... I don't know exactly what the level of association was there, but there seems to be people who had gold mines who were really like into this idea of like, yeah, we should have a gold based <laughs> yeah. money. Oh you know, <laughs> there's like an obvious interest. Right. So, yeah, yeah. It seems like they kind of found like a way to uh, scratch each other's backs, you know. Totally. Actually, hold up real quick. I really got to pee. Um, yeah, that's actually a good You guys can keep talking or. Do, do you have to do Maghreb or you have actually an extra hour? Maybe? I still have to do Asr uh, actually. So if Oh, you should do Asr now, I think, right? Yeah, we can take okay. a break if you want to come back in like a couple of minutes. Yeah. So. Yeah, 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 we could do that. 
I still have an hour till my group, so. Okay, that's fine. Okay, okay. Well, I'll be quick then. We just let this run, recording this? Yeah, I think we can let it run. That's what you do. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go do this a while and come back. So what I'm saying is we have to go back, we have to revitalize the ancient institutions of Britain, modernize them, and powers that were taken from the throne have to be given back to the throne. In Britain we are very fortunate because the son of the present queen, someone that everyone has to admit respectfully, does that duty that has been allotted to her. But it has no say in what happens. That son is, we know, has been intellectually and spiritually interested in Islam from his youth. He is knowledgeable about Islam. He has read about Islam. And that, that could not be more valuable to the Muslim community. He has two sons. The younger son is a loose cannon and has behaved very badly. And uh, instead of being princely and raising up the people around him to an equally princely behavior, which is the foundation of the Henrician education of the Dukes of, of England, he has gone down to their level, so he's become rather common and, and, and indeed insulted his, his, his sovereign. The, the number one son of uh, the prince, hereditary prince, has to be very careful because if he does what Edward VIII did and marries, if I may use the phrase, beneath him, then he'll pay the same price as that with the eighth pay. They'll, they'll chuck him out. Okay. Uh, a marriage is not something uh, like a celebrity marriage or the bald, cancer-ridden woman marrying a criminal in full view of all the British television. That is not how a prince uh, marries. He marries dynastically for power. Uh, and that's... Uh, uh, an inescapable duty. But leaving aside the, the, the shakiness of the, the next generation, or the uncertainty, let us say, with Prince Charles, the, Mus the Muslims have someone who can be their guardian. The only way he can do it is, is not by becoming Muslim. At this stage in the proceedings, that would be an invitation for the movement against him, of very powerful forces in the country. What he must do is not try to be syncretic, because that is a Freemasonic action to say all religions are the same. If all religions are the same, then none of them are worth anything. And to his credit, many years ago, we know that he refused to join the Masons on being invited by the Masons. And was therefore the first of the of the Hanoverian kings not to become Muslim. So 
his first responsibility. Not our, not the Muslim community, the, the prince's first responsibility is to stand by the Church of England, stand by the Hindrishim cut with Rome. If he defends the cut with Rome, and Blair has tried to open up the extreme fascistic solution of Britain returning to Rome as a solution inside a capitalist ethos, if he stands by the Hindrishim contract, that he is the defender of, not of faiths, because that is Freemasonry, the defender of the Christian faith, it's worth defending for that element in it which is the truth. But again, he cannot do that alone. Therefore, to revitalize the country, House of Lords must be saved. The nature and principle of the House of Lords must be restored. It cannot be appointees of, a, of, a, of the political class who are themselves disgraced so that the House of Lords is now full of that same scum that the Labour Party have in the House of Commons. So the House of Lords, a new, a new aristocracy has to be created. Titles have to be created. Land ownership has to be recognized. Things that are dear to the Prince's heart. The reactivating of the Lord of Tenancy of the Counties, which was part of the very social fabric of Britain, that every county had a Lord of Tenant who was answerable directly to the monarch. It was a, an honorarium by the time I was a child, but it existed and it had a social function. That whole web of things has to be revived. Now in that, in that atmosphere, remember we are a minority. They all talk about Shariat and it's, 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 it's no issue of Shariat till there is governance. We are resident then in a Christian country, similar to the residency of the early Muslims under the Negus of Ethiopia who was Christian and who therefore protected them with that natural compassion the Christians have for the Muslims.
قلبي 